Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. <clears throat> well, as I said yesterday, and I want to thank Avrami for starting yesterday's show. It's good to be back in our New York City studios, as much as I love and can't express my love enough for the Holy Land and the incredible fortune that we had, um, Stacy Siegel and myself, to be there for a few days. Uh, nonetheless, on a uh, professional broadcast level, it's good to be back in our in our studios here in New York City and the broadcasting throughout the world. And I want to thank everybody out there who uh, continues to be uh, loyal listeners even during our nine days format. It is much appreciated. Uh, we are a combination of um, lectures and spoken word programming, essentially, during the nine days. Tisha B'Av, of course, starts this coming Saturday night. And we'll be observed this Saturday night and Sunday, and then we'll get into a um, completely regular schedule again, please God, on Tuesday of next week. Uh, Monday, the 10th of Av, is often reserved for the stories of Rav Shlomo Kalbach, and I would assume that we will uh, be be doing that um, uh, today as well, or I should say this year as well, uh, this coming Monday. Um... So essentially, our next season, our 10th season of NSN, continues uh, uh, to kick off, let's put it that way, uh, next week. We are um, in this little bit of a lull during the three weeks and nine days, and then we will come out blazing next week, especially if, if, if the plan we have works out. At the moment, the plans we have for next week are not working out, but if the plan we do have for next week works out, it should be very exciting programming here. Uh, next week at JM and the M and then Alchem Siegel Network. We'll, we'll see what happens with all of that. Right now, we're concentrating on our lectures. Our Barrel Wine is responsible for the lectures that we are presenting uh, during the nine days. His brilliant presentations are available to you if you go to rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com, or if you go ahead and... Um, Call 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. In either case, you have access to his incredible lectures, and I certainly hope you'll take advantage. Uh, we started this uh, late yesterday, toward the end of JM and the AM yesterday morning, and we'll continue um, until its conclusion. Um, actually, we'll restart it now and go into its conclusion at some point this morning. Rabbi Wine has a series on essential classics, and one of them is about the Mishnah Brewer, which has been one of the most effective and important um, uh, commentaries on the codification or on the code of Jewish law that we have really in our history, certainly in modern history. And there's so much we could learn from the history behind this essential classic. Rabbi Beryl Wine on a Wednesday morning live broadcast. We are here, we are live, we are in our New York City studios. You can comment on the app, go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. Feel free to email us, nahum at Um, What else? Yeah, feel free to be in touch, of course. Rabbi Barrel Wine and the Mission of Brewer, you're listening to JM in the AM. In this uh, series of lectures... I'm discussing books that uh, really made a great difference in Jewish life and Jewish history. We're always uh, aware that people make a great difference. 
but there are some times that the book, a certain book published at a certain time for a specific reason, also makes a great difference. And today's book, uh, The Mission of Brura, uh, really is a sea change in Jewish life. It has to be seen that way. There was an article uh, in uh, Tradition uh, 10 or 12 years ago by uh, Professor Chaim Soloveitchik. And uh, in that article, he uh, pointed out uh, the change that has happened in the Jewish Orthodox world over the past 50, 80, maybe even 100 years. Orthodoxy changed from being a societal religion, meaning everybody doing what everybody else does. So if all the stores are closed on Shabbat, so my store is also closed on Shabbat. If everybody in town eats kosher, I eat kosher. It's uh, what I call the Judaism that was a mile wide and an inch deep. And that Judaism did not survive the onslaught of the Haskalah, of secular Zionism, of the left. And it did not survive the onslaught of American assimilation in the United States. And it did not survive here in Israel. Uh, The traditional Jew uh, had... uh, non-traditional children and perhaps even anti-traditional grandchildren. Because of that onslaught and because of the fact that the rabbis saw the Jewish world slipping away in front of their eyes, we're talking the 1800s and we're talking Lithuania, Poland, the Ukraine. We're not talking about, uh, you know, Kansas City. So because of that, the entire focus of orthodoxy changed, and it became a book-oriented religion. And the book became the major guiding influence in orthodox Jewish life. It has to be said that uh, 90%, maybe more, of Eastern European Jewry were not book Jews. They were, uh, the men were uh, literate, the women were illiterate, and uh, even the men, uh, very few were Talmudic scholars, a small percentage of the Jewish world. And so therefore, uh, because of this, This is a completely different orientation. And that's the orientation that we are in today. Where, again, how we behave and what rules we follow and what halachot we observe are influenced mainly by books and not by people. In fact, uh, many times the same people who write the books don't follow what the book says in certain instances, 
because of the fact that they, uh, so to speak, are more flexible than the book, but they'll never put it in writing. They'll tell you what to do orally, but they'll never put it in writing, which puts, uh, uh, which puts the matter at risk, as you can well imagine. The Gaon of Vilna uh, was the, really the prime person that understood the changing Jewish world. The Gaon saw what Haskalah would do. He was almost a prophet in that area. He said that the first Maskilim are wonderful, observant Jews, and they just want Hebrew and the Tanakh and a needed reforms in the uh, Jewish educational system, all of which were good. But the second generation uh, will uh, undermine the authority of the rabbis. The third generation will deny religion. The fourth generation will bring about assimilation, which was prophetic. They tell a great story about the uh, in Vilna in the 1740s, the leading maskil in town, the head of the Haskala, who was a very, very uh, scholarly uh, person, so he passed away. And he passed away, so the Hever uh, Kedisha said to the Magid in town that he has to come and say the Hespid. He has to eulogize uh, the person who died. Magid was not anxious to do that, but he was under great pressure from uh, the people who ran the Hevra Kedisha, and he really had to listen to them. So he got up at the Hesper and he said, this is the first Moscow that I have to eulogize. So I really don't know what to say, but if a lot of other Moscowians will die, I'll get the hang of what to say. Well, so uh, the Haskalah, uh, in the middle of the 1700s, which was uh, a carryover from German Haskalah, which later became German reform, uh, penetrated deep into Lithuanian Jewish society. And because of that, therefore, uh, this different viewpoint of how to uh, keep Jews Jewish, so to speak, uh, became the norm. So the uh, Gaon of Vilna had a uh, disciple, uh, Rabbi Avram Danzig, who, by the way, is buried next to the Gaon. Uh, the, uh, the Gaon's remains were... Uh, the, the, the Russian communists, when they controlled Lithuania, in their great sensitivity and... Uh, progressiveness, so they converted the Jewish cemetery into a soccer field and leveled it so that what the Nazis didn't do, they completed. Uh, Rabbi Teitz, Zichrona Levrocha of Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, through uh, his uh, political influence through senators in the United States, etc., received permission from the Russian government to exhume six bodies and rebury them. So one was the Gon and one was Rabavron Danzig. 
And then there was the Ger Tzedek, there was a famous uh, count, a Lithuanian nobleman who converted to Judaism and was burned at the stake by the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, so uh, the count, from his grave, there grew an enormous oak tree, which was the symbol of the Jewish cemetery in Vilna. And naturally, when the, the communists took down the oak tree, but the, the Gertzedek is also buried, there are six graves in a row there in the Vilna Cemetery that Rabbi Teitz was able to get the government to exhume. He told me personally that, the, that when they took the Gon, the Gon's body was still whole. So in any event, Rabbi Avram Danzig takes the Shulchan Aruch because the, the Shulchan Aruch is the work of Rabbi Yosef Karo in the 1540s. It was modified by Ramoshi Israelish. It was made Ashkenazic friendly by him. And the, the Shulchan Aruch became the basic book of the Jewish people regarding halacha. But the Shulchan Aruch piled upon itself. Jews love to do this. It piled upon the Rabbi Yosef Kara said, and the Rambam said, for instance, you have my book, you don't need any other books. So the Lord heard what he said, and there are thousands of books about the Rambam's book that you don't need any other books for. So the Shulchan Aruch, the same thing. Uh, 300 years after the Rambam, 340 years after the Rambam, so Rabbi Yosef Karo says, I'm going to make the Shulchan Aruch. If you have my book, every Jew will know what to do. Every halacha is decided. Every opinion is quoted. Perfect. Well, so it accumulated in the next 300 years. Uh, commentary upon commentary, super commentary upon super commentary, until the book became only the uh, province of scholars. The ordinary Jew couldn't deal with it because it's so heavy with uh, scholarship and with commentary, and also uh, you no longer had a clear definition of what the halacha would be because you had so many great uh, scholars over the centuries uh, who either agreed or disagreed or had a different opinion. And then he also had new situations which arose that the Shulchan Aruch didn't deal with. Simply technology changed, uh, lifestyle changed, uh, all of these things. So Rabbi Avram Danzig, in writing the Chaye Odom, that was his, the name of his book, uh, made an abridgment of the Shulchan Aruch. And he just said, do this, do this, do this, do this. Cut out all of the commentaries. Well, that didn't last too long, because then people started to make commentaries on the Chayodah. And uh, because of that, uh, there arose in Lithuania. This is we're going to get to the topic. Don't get nervous. We're going to. Uh, there arose in Lithuania. Uh, a Jew uh, rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein, who was the Rav of Navaradok. Navaradok was a peanut of a town, but it uh, later became famous because it had a famous Musar yeshiva, the Navaradok yeshiva there. 
but the town was very small. But the town always had great rabbis. Rabbi Yitzchel Specter, who later became the Rov and Kovna, was first the Rov in the Varadok. It was, a, it was a very famous town, even though it was a small town. Why did the rabbis like to be a Rov in a small town? Because they didn't want the pressures of being a rabbi in Beit Knesset Hanasi. They don't want to be in a big city. They don't want, you know, uh, that hundreds of people should have access to them. They want to sit and learn. Or they want to write. So therefore, they look for quiet places. They look for small towns. The fact that none of those towns could afford them a living made no difference. And my father-in-law, blessed memory, he was a rov in a town that had 41 families. 41 Jewish families, 19 non-Jewish families. That was the town. And his wages were they gave him a goat. And my mother-in-law would milk the goat every morning, right? They had milk. And uh, she would sell the salt and the candles. And that was the, you know, that was the salary. But it was a wonderful place. It was small. It was quiet. And he could learn and he could do whatever he wants. And then he ends up in Detroit where he doesn't have a minute to himself. So in the Varadok, Rabbi Yechiel Michal Alevi Epstein writes a monumental work. You know the Shulchan Aruch. This is the Aruch HaShulchan. In which he decides everything. And he wrote it on all four sections of the Shulchan Aruch. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of style, of language, of content, and of decision. He took things on his shoulder. He said, you know, it's allowed, not allowed. He did it. The rabbis in Lithuania went up the wall with the Orach HaShulchan. That was the book that they used. They didn't use uh, for the Mishnah Brewer that we're going to discuss. They used the Orach HaShulchan because he was a practical rabbi. And therefore, it's written differently, as we'll see, than the Mishnah Brewer where the Chofetz Chaim never held any public position in the Jewish world. He was not a rabbi, he was not a Rosh Yeshiva, he was the Chofetz Chaim. He was a holy man. But that's a different, a different background and a different overview uh, than being the rabbi in the town. So the Orach HaShulchan uh, swept the boards. However, uh, the, the Orach Shulchan came out and began in the 1860s already to come out. It came out always volume by volume. And the, the rabbis themselves traveled to sell the book. They didn't have like bookstores or agents. So uh, even though the, the rabbinic world was aware of it, the Jewish world was not much aware of it. The Chofetz Chaim... Rabbi Soil Mayor Akoin Kagan, uh, who lived a very long life, almost a century, and was active almost till, till his last day. Uh, the Chofetz Chaim, in his youth, and when he, in his late 20s, 30s, wrote his famous work, Chofetz Chaim. The Chofetz Chaim was the Shulchan Aruch on the laws of Loshan Horah of slander, of uh, bad speech, of gossip. 
he made a whole Shulchan Aruch on that one subject, something which had never been done before. And he put it out anonymously, without a name. Didn't say who the author was. But after a while, people figured out who it was. And his reputation as a holy person grew. So he wrote other interesting books. He wrote, uh, he's the first one that wrote a book, How the Jewish Immigrant in America Should Behave in Order to Remain Jewish. It's called Nitche Yisrael. In it he says, if you have to work on Shabbos, don't write. Don't handle the money. Minimize the Chilu Shabbos. It's interesting that no American rabbi wrote a book like that. And he wrote uh, a book, Avas Chesed, uh, The Obligation of Jews to Be Good, to Be Sensitive to Others. He wrote a book, Shemir Haloshon. And he was already world famous. He was a friend of Reb Chaim Ezer Grajensky. Reb Chaim Ezer Grajensky was the chief uh, leader of the Jewish Orthodox world in Lithuania. He lived in Vilna. And so he was a Talmudic genius. So in the yeshiva world, they said that Reb Chaim Ezer was a tzaddik. But his genius blinded everybody to his tzitkis, to his righteousness. And the Chofetz Chaim was a tzaddik, but his tzitkis was so great that it blinded everyone to his scholarship. So that they held him to be a holy man. Now, he, uh, seeing the situation, sensing the situation in Lithuania, and he sees that the... Uh, Basic hope uh, lies in the yeshivot. The yeshivot would produce leaders who in turn would be able to influence the public. It would be a, uh, a, a matter that, uh, cumulative matter, and that only the yeshivot would save the Jewish world. And therefore he made a yeshiva in Raden, in his own hometown, but he was not the Rosh Yeshiva. He had uh, a son-in-law who was a tremendous genius. Reb Tzvi Levinson, Hirsch Levinson, who was well-known. He was a tremendous genius. And he was like six foot four, and the Chavetz Chaim was like four foot six. My father-in-law said when they walked together, you know, like the, the non-Jews would line up to see the sight. And... Uh, he, together with his son-in-law, had this idea that they were going to make a definitive halachic work on one section of the Shulchan Aruch, on the section of Orachayim. Because Orachayim is the most practical section that people need. It has all the laws of prayer, the laws of tefillin, the laws of tzitzis, the laws of Shabbos, the laws of Yontiv, the laws of Pesach. All of those laws are in Orachayim. He said, that's the part that we have to concentrate on. So in effect, he was imitating the Chayyodim, but he was going to do it in a manner that was made for the yeshivas and not just for the, so to speak, the plain people.
In certain yeshivas, even today, Chaya uh, Odom is the text that's used for halacha. I know in Tells it still is. But in most yeshivas, it, uh, it's on the shelf. So he sets out to write this monumental sefer, the Mishnah Bura. Now, he didn't write it by himself. His son, Revar Yaleib HaKohen Pupko, the Chavetz Chaim is called Kagan. His son was called Pupko, the famous Pupko family in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and other places in the United States because his wife's maiden name was Pupko. And it was very common under the Tsar to give your child a different last name. The rule under the Tsar was that if you were the only son, you didn't have to go to the army. So a man had six sons, so all of them had a different last name, and they all were only sons. And that was very common uh, in, uh, in uh, Lithuania and in other parts of the Russian Empire, that in order to avoid the army, people took different last names. Now, there was one other book uh, before the Mission of Brewer, written by Rabbi Shlomo Gansfried, who was in Bohemia, in Central Europe, Slovakia, later uh, close to Romania, uh, called the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, the abridged Shulchan Aruch. Now, in uh, Lithuania, the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch did not gain much popularity. But in Central Europe, uh, the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch was very popular. And it also attempted to do the same thing. It attempted to give the Jew an understanding of how to behave without having to resort to the scholarship of plowing through the large Shulchan Aruch itself with all of its super commentaries. So the Chavetz Chaim and his son-in-law, so his son, his, uh, son Rebar Yaleva Kohen Pupko, wrote a biography of his father, and in the biography of his father, he says that the Mishnah Brewer was written by committee. In other words, the Chofetz Chaim was the general editor, but there were people that wrote it, and it was mainly written by his son-in-law, whose name does not appear in the book. He says, therefore, sometimes you find uh, contradictions in the Mishnah Brewer. In one place he says to do this, and then... In another place, he seems to contradict that. He said you shouldn't be surprised because different hands were used to uh, compose it. But the Chofetz Chaim is the general editor, and he's the one who took responsibility for it. He took such responsibility for it, I have in my home, in my library, an original copy of the Mishnah Brewer, the first edition. At the beginning of the book, the Chofetz Chaim's handwriting it says Muga. This, I looked over this book and I see that it has all the pages. Because he wouldn't sell a book that, you know, that, that, that didn't have all the pages in it. So he looked over every book and he wrote Muga in the book. That he was the one that looked it over. And here uh, I want to discuss with you how this affected the Jewish world. But first, we should hear some ideas from his own introductions to the book. He's telling you why, what it's here. Why is it here? He says, in our time, people don't believe in eternal life anymore. 
It's the here and now. And he said that's a basic tragedy because that tragedy is what negates a Torah way of life. If a person thinks that this is all there is to it, so then uh, there is uh, no reason for good behavior. There's no reason to observe the mitzvot. There's no reason for Jewish tradition. There's no reason for anything. It's part of the great problem that the secular Jewish world has why to remain Jewish? What, for what? So he says the Torah wrote to us and said, You shall observe my statutes and my commandments. Asher yase osam hodom, that a person should perform them. And he will live through them. So he says the interpretation of Vachai Bohem, Alma. It means eternal life. And therefore, if we're talking about eternal life, so if I want to give you the gift of eternal life, we say in the Brocha, when we are by the Torah, Vachaye Olam Nota Besochena. God implanted within us eternal life. So if I want to give you eternal life, I would think that he says that people would be interested, right? The Gemara says a, uh, that was the basis of his book about the uh, Lashon Hara. The Gemara says that there was a peddler in the street in you know, in Machna Yehuda, and he was selling. Man boy chayai, man boy chayai. Who wants life? I'm selling life. So it was a long line. People came up and they thought he has, you know, a potion, an elixir, a magic pill. So they said, so what, what did he what? How did we have eternal life? So he said, the posik, mi oishe chofetz chayim, oev yomim liros tov. You want to live long? Don't talk, don't talk Lashon Hara, don't talk about others. That's eternal life. So just as the book, the Chofetz Chaim, was based on the idea that he's going to sell you eternal life, now this book is also based on the idea that he's going to sell you eternal life. How is he going to sell you eternal life? He says the Torah and the observance of mitzvahs is the sustenance for a person's soul. Just as a person's body needs sustenance, right? That's why pizza was invented in the world. So we have also a person's soul needs sustenance. The non-Jewish world, the soul of the non-Jewish world as one type of diet and the Jewish soul has another type of diet. And the diet in the Jewish world is Torah and mitzvahs, the observance of commandments. And he says, therefore, the bread that sustains the soul are the halachos, and the wine that sustains the soul, because it says in the Pesach, go eat my bread and drink my wine. That's where the Christians took all their nonsense from. 
So the bread, so the Chofetz Chaim says, the bread is knowing the halachas, and the wine is knowing the secrets of Torah, the spirituality of Torah. And those are the two things that sustain our soul. So he says, so when a person passes from the world, so if the soul, so to speak, has been sustained in a good shape, so then in the world to come, it also is in good shape. But if no one took care of it in this world, so then it's atrophied. It, uh, it's without any power in the world to come as well. And because of that, therefore, he said, I want you to know that I'm going to explain to you how to observe the commandments of the Torah. That's the purpose of this book. By observing the commandments of the Torah, you feed your soul. And by feeding your soul, you guarantee your eternity. And he says, now in our time where Shulchan Aruch is so difficult to read, to learn. There are too many super commentaries, he says. And another problem is because of the fact that even if you know all the super commentaries, you don't know what to do because there are so many that they disagree with each other. So then what do you do? So he has this great plan that he's going to clear it up, at least as far as the Orachayim is concerned. And that that's the basis of what he is writing. So here you have a book that becomes your rabbi. My father-in-law told me many, many times, my father-in-law grew up in the house of the Chofetz Chaim, so he knew him very well. He said, somebody would come to the Chofetz Chaim and say, Rebbe, you know, on Shabbos, am I allowed to do this or not? So the Chofetz Chaim would answer, we have to look it up in the Mishnah Brewer. Let's see what the Mishnah Brewer says. So he himself encouraged the idea that it's not the person that answers, it's the book that answers. And that is the sea change in, and we see it today, right? Uh, in our time, the Chazonish, etc. It's the book that answers. It's the book that contains the information. And the book is accessible to all. He had a great library. He lived a very a life of almost abject poverty. But he had a great library. And because of his library, he says in his introduction that he was able to uh, uh, amass a great deal of knowledge a great deal of research went into this, and he's able, therefore, uh, to do uh, what's, what's necessary. The main part of the Mishnah Brura concerns itself with Shabbos, with the halachas of Shabbat. And he has an introduction about the importance of Shabbat. It's almost heartbreaking. And we live in a time where our hearts are broken already, so it's not as heartbreaking. But... In Eastern European society, where the Shabbat was sacrosanct, where it was holy, where uh, you have to describe how the Jewish world was. For instance, in Salonika, where Jews controlled the port in Salonika. The Jews were the stevedores, 
They were the chandlers, the suppliers. They controlled the port. And we're talking Greece, Smartic Jews. The port was closed on Shabbat. Closed to everybody. In Gibraltar, till today, most of the commercial ventures and stores, etc., are closed on Shabbat. So that even the non-Jews don't open their stores because that's the day off. All of a sudden, in the 1860s, 1870s, all of this begins to be swept away. Public desecration of the Shabbat enters into the Jewish world. Something which almost never happened in the exile. Uh, there were always were Jews on all levels of the spectrum, at all uh, ends of it. So, you know, some were more, some were less. But uh, the Shabbat was a Shabbat. If you lived in a Jewish town, you knew it was Shabbat. You didn't have, uh, you know, 15,000 cars going down Rehov Ramban. Didn't exist. And they see it being swept away in front of their eyes. And they're powerless to stop it. And in the United States, uh, the Shabbat fell almost immediately when they went off the boat. No matter how hard they tried to remain. I remember in my father's synagogue in Chicago, and we're talking uh, in the uh, 1940s, I was one then, so uh, you'll, you'll get it, yeah. So uh, they had, my, my, we had two minyonim on Shabbos. There were 750 men that attended each minyan. It was a tremendous shul. My father was the rod. So they had the hashkoma minyan and the regular minyan. The hashkoma minyan was at 6 in the morning, and the regular minyan was at uh, 9. So I remember as a little boy, I was going, and my father's holding my hand. I'm walking up the stairs to the big shul, and there's like 750 men pouring out of the shul. As so I said to him, Daddy, what, who, you know, who are these guys? I mean, what are, you know, because we had another 750 men coming for the second minion. And he said, Beryl, don't ask. You don't want to talk about it. But I, in my precocious genius, figured it out. Because I saw the guys waiting to take a streetcar, to take a trolley to go to work. They had no choice. If you don't come in on Saturday, you don't come in on Monday. Their children did not go to Hashkoma Minyan. Their grandchildren were assimilated. And their great-grandchildren may not even be Jewish. So he writes here an impassioned plea for the Shabbat. And he says, you cannot be a Sabbath observer unless you know how to be a Sabbath observer. And he says, the laws are complicated. And especially in our time when there's so much new technology, change in society, all of, you know, it's a different world today. He doesn't talk about time clocks about electricity, he doesn't talk about, uh, you know, uh, so many elevators, none of this appears here. But uh, the laws of Shabbat 
and the decisions regarding that remain the most difficult area in Piskei Haloche even till today. So he says, if you don't know, so he discusses, for instance, there's a malocha borer. On Shabbos, you're not allowed to pick, uh, let's say, bones from the fish. That's why, that's the origin of gefilte fish. And here they love it because they grind the bones in it too. And, you know, so you get the full flavor. But why did they have gefilte fish? Because of the fact that they were afraid that people would pick the bones. And by picking the bones, so there's an Isser of Bore, right? It's one of the 39 of us Malachas. So he said, what if nobody knows anything about the Bore, right? Put on the plate meat and chicken, Okay. The guy decides that he's going to put the meat away for shalashudas. So he picks what he is not going to eat, and he wraps it and puts it away. That's wrong. That's borer. What he should do is take what he is going to eat, and the other will be left over. When it's left over, then you wrap it up, and, and that's what you have. So he gives that as an example. So he says if you don't know what borer is, so, you know, so you're a Shomer Shabbos, but, you know, like you did it wrong. And we all know today, I mean, the computer is the primary example. You know, if, uh, if you put the computer, you know, I want to reach you, and I forgot to put the dot in, or I forgot, to, I spelled your name wrong. Nothing. The computer won't, we only, the email will never get there. So that's the example he says with Shabbat. If you don't do it right, so it never gets there, right? There's no address. And therefore, he says, you have to know. How will you know? He said, well, I give you here the third chalik, the third section of the Mishnah Brewer. It's the third and fourth. It's the largest section of the Mishnah Brewer. And I tell you what to do. I explain it to you. And, he, and so he has, because it was meant pretty much for an elite audience. So he, the book is in three sections. One section is the Mishnah Brura, which is the law itself. Then the second section is called the Be'er Halacha, in which he expands upon it and brings all the commentaries and justifies his opinion and tells you what others also think. So that was very popular in the yeshivas. We always learned the Be'er Halacha. And at the bottom, he has the Sharatziun, which are all the footnotes, all of his sources. So it's a monumental scholarly work, just a monumental work. And it penetrated into the Jewish world, into the Jewish religious world. The rabbis did not use it. I shouldn't say they didn't use it, but they, they will use the Orach HaShulchan. And the Orach HaShulchan differed with the Mishnah Brewer in many, many issues. But in the yeshiva world, the Mishnah Brura became the staple book. And eventually the yeshiva world came to control the Jewish world, the, the non-Hasidic Jewish world. The Hasidim never used it. 
The Lubavitcher used the Shulchan Aruch Arav, which is uh, written by the Balatanya. And the other Chassidim relied upon the, the Rebbe. The Rebbe told them what to do. It's still more oral than written. Uh, in our time, that has changed as well. And really, uh, all of the later poskim always begin now with the Mishnah Brura, even if they're going to disagree with it. But they begin with it, because that became the staple book. Now, what happened to the Mishnah Brura is what happened to all the other abridgments, is that now we have commentaries upon commentaries upon the Mishnah Brura, so that it would become encrusted with so many commentaries that maybe our great-grandchildren, somebody will sit down and write another abridgment to try and bring it back to the level that, uh, that you can figure out exactly what to do. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, he has a discussion here, the famous discussion, regarding what we call today the shiurim, the size Right, like how large a cup of wine do you have to drink at the Seder? How much matzah do you have to eat at the Seder? So here, something happened in the Jewish world. And it happened in the uh, 1730s in Prague. So you had the Rabbi Cheskel Alevi Landau, the noted Yehuda, the great rabbi of Prague, so he tried an empirical experiment. And he, with his experiment, he said, listen, our, the size, because the Gemara talks about that you need the size of two eggs. In other words, the amount of liquid that two eggs will displace. He said he tried it and tried it and tried it. He said, our eggs got smaller. It's not the eggs of the Talmud time. The Talmud time must have had greater eggs because it doesn't work. And therefore, what he did is he doubled all of the shiurim. He doubled them. In order, because he said the eggs got smaller. That became accepted in the Jewish world, certainly today in the Jewish world, because it was accepted by the Chazonish. Today we have very large, uh, very large uh, shiurim of matzah and of wine, etc. Large cups. But if you see, for instance, the Kiddush cup uh, of the Chafetz Chaim himself, which I saw because he had a relative in Muncie that had it, it wouldn't make the standard today. Or the Kiddush cup that I saw of the Svasemis also wouldn't make the the standard today. And the Svasemis, the Ger Rebbe, was, uh, you know. So the Chofetz Chaim writes in the Mishnah Bura, I'll just take this as an example. He says, uh, it could be the eggs aren't the same size, but he said our fingers are the same size. And the way you get to the size of the egg is by measuring the size of the finger, the etzba. And he said, the etzba is the same. So how can it be that the eggs got smaller? And therefore, he is of the opinion that it didn't get smaller. But he makes the rabbinic compromise. 
He says, if we're talking about mitzvahs minat Torah, for instance, Kiddush Friday night, or the four koses on the Kiddush Kiddush cup on Pesach, so then he said, we have to have a big shear, then we'll follow the idea of the Nodeh B'Yehuda. But he said, on things that are only the Rabbanan, like uh, Kiddush Shabbos morning, so he said, you don't need big, uh, big cups. In our time, an interesting development happened. There's a professor at Bar Ilan University of Physics, comes from Detroit. Uh, his name is Greenfield. I mean, we knew him as Buddy Greenfield, but that's, that's disrespectful. Greenfield, uh, 20 years ago, published an article in Moria in which he said that the whole problem with the shiurim is because they measured the finger wrong. They measured the finger lengthwise, and Chazal meant to measure the finger widthwise. And if you measure the finger widthwise, the eggs never got bigger, never got smaller, uh, or you know, like the whole problem disappears. Well, you know, when that hit the fan, uh, so uh, the uh, the Stipler himself, the great Stipler, Yaakov Kanievsky, wrote against it, saying because he said you can't say the Chazonish was wrong that he didn't that he measured, but Greenfield didn't give up. He wrote against the he he, re, he replied, and then Rav Kalman Kahana, who was the Rav of Kibbutz Chofetz Chaim. And it was a Talmud of Chazonish. He was from Poli Agudis Israel. So he wrote again. It was a, it's a whole literature. There's a whole literature on it today. But the Mishnah Bura, in effect, ignored the problem. And he put the problem into the Be'er Alocha. Because the Be'er Alocha is where the yeshiva guys are. So they, you know, they'll do all of these things. But for the plain people, he ignored it. But today, again, since the yeshiva world controls the Jewish world, so then everybody's got to drink it. Everybody has the big shiurim. It became de rigueur because of the fact that that was how the yeshiva world looked at it. He writes many times that you have to ask the experts. For instance, uh, we have a din in Hilchus Pesach, not to eat sugar. The Ramah says sugar. So their sugar is not our sugar. And the reason for it was that they would dry the sugar in ovens. Both beet sugar and cane sugar. And they dry it in ovens that were chomets. So therefore, the sugar was not uh, used. So the Ramos says in Hilchus Pesach uh, that we don't eat uh, sugar. He says, however, if you can be sure that it never touched, never came to contact with Chomet, you could use sugar. So the, so the Mishnah, so, so because of that, for a century, two centuries in Eastern Europe, they didn't use sugar on Pesach. I, I mean, I uh, today's Pesach is... Uh, you know, it's beyond anybody's dreams. Uh, I come from a Pesach where we ate, uh, you know, chicken and potatoes for breakfast. 
We had eight days in a row of Plashiks three times a day. Because, you know, how could you, there was no, how could you have the cheese for Pesach? What do you thought? What are you going? You know, couldn't be. So that was in my house, yet I remember. And today, you know, I see by my children or my grandchildren, you know, if you don't have the, 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 uh, the latest, uh, you know, candy thing, you know, so it's always Pesach, right? They can't, how are they going to exist? So the world has changed. So the Mishnah Bird discusses here sugar. So he's discussing sugar in 1870, 1880, which is not sugar in 2006. But it certainly was not sugar of the Ramah in 1545. It had also come a long way. And therefore he says, you should know, you got to ask the experts how they make sugar. You can't pass in the halacha. You have to know what you're doing. So you have to ask them. Then he has a whole question about snuff tobacco, which in the Shmektabak, which in Eastern Europe uh, Jews used, and it was addictive. It's just as addictive as smoking. And therefore, how are they going to go eight, nine days without snuff tobacco? So there's a big discussion how to make the smoke, how to make the, uh, the tobacco good. So he says again, we've got to ask the people that make it, right? So in effect, he's saying you've got to get a hechsher for all of these things. J.M. and the A.M. were in the uh, midst of our discussion, or I should say our lecture bar by Beryl Wine about the Mishnah Brura, one of the essential classics, one of the most important works certainly of the last century or so. And uh, we will conclude this lecture coming up right after the top of the hour here at JM in the AM. It's a Wednesday on this July the 14th, day five in the month of Menachem Av, the year 5781. It's the fifth day of our nine days, which will conclude on uh, Sunday with Tisha B'Av. Monday, we will have our stories of the uh, of Shlomo Kalbach, which we do each year on the 10th of Av. And then, of course, we'll continue with our regular programming this coming Tuesday here at JM in the AM. And the Nahum Siegel Network. 71 degrees, 94% humidity. Winds are east. Yeah, it's humid out there. 94%. Winds are east at 7 miles per hour. Partly cloudy with a high of 90. Then tonight, cloudy skies, a low of 73. Tomorrow, partly cloudy, a high, 90 degrees. Yushalayim is at 84. Uh, up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missouri, they're at 66 degrees. Wow. Good morning, Ari Katz. Good morning, all the staff, administration, counselors, staff members, and campers up at Camp Missouri. 66 in Guilford, 71 here in New York City. As we say good morning here at JM in the AM. And I thank you all for tuning in. It's good to be back in our New York City studios, although we had an amazing time over in the Holy Land. And um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that these rumors that there'll be open skies, that there'll be regular ability for everybody to travel to Israel very, very soon with what will likely be PCR test results and, and, um, PCR tests and proof of vaccination. I'm hoping that that actually does happen. The rumors continue to fly. What will actually happen? What will be implemented? Who knows? But we continue to hope. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. Uh, support us by going to fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. And um, feel free to email us with anything at nachum at nachumsegel.com, nachum, N-A, 
C H U M at Nahum Siegel N A C H U M S E G A L dot com. And again, our spoken word format will continue here at JM in the AM. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Round the world, the web at AlchemySigl.com and the AlchemySigl Network, and of course, any beloved NSN app. Galay Tzal in the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up and plenty more on its Wednesday. And then we'll continue with the conclusion of our Mishnah Brewer lecture and then more coming up from Rabbi Barrel Wine, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. Galay Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Wednesday is next. Boker Tov from JMNM. Galay Tzal, Yerushalayim, Asha Ashtayim, Shalom Rav, Vaulpan, Rani Avnai, Ima Shekorei Akshav. הקיצוץ במנות היום לאברכים שקידם שר האוצר ליברמן ידחה בחודשיים, כתבנו לענייני כלכלה ניתאי הנבי. רק בשבוע שעבר הודיע שר האוצר על ביטול סבסוד מעונות היום, בעיקר ל-20 אלף ילדי אברכים, בהיקף 400 מיליון שקלים בשנה, מספטמבר. היום הוא כבר חוזר בו, הוא מודיע עם שרת הכלכלה ברביבאי, שהקיצוץ יושם במלואו, אבל מנובמבר. הסיבה הרשמית היא הערכות של המערכת, בפועל זו ארכה למשפחות למצוא עבודה, ודחייה של הגזרה לאחרי החגים. חודשיים וחצי לאסון מירון, המשטרה פתחה בחקירה לאחר שאלמונים השחיתו את לוח הזיכרון עם תמונות הנספים שהוצב במקום. מדווח כתבנו לענייני דתות שחר גליק. הדפים שניטלו בלוח הזיכרון במירון עם תמונותיהם של 45 הנספים נקראו והושלכו על הרצפה. במצלמות האבטחה נצפו שלושה גברים, בעלי חזות חרדית לבושי טליטות, מגיעים בשעות הבוקר, מבצעים את הוונדליזם ותולשים את הלוח. המשטרה פתחה בחקירת האירוע. מפורום משפחות הנספים נמסר, נחצה קו אדום, מצופה ממשטרת ישראל לפעול למציאת האחראים ולמצות עמם את הדין. הקורונה בצה"ל, שמונה לוחמים מצוות אחד של יחידת מגלן, שהיו מחוסנים, נדבקו בנגיף. עשרות לוחמים נשלחו לבידוד. דיווח לראשונה כתבנו הצבאי דורון קדוש. מפקד הצוות ועוד שבעה חיילים, כולם לוחמי מגלן, נמצאו חיובים לקורונה על אף שהיו מחוסנים. שני צוותים ביחידה, חמישים לוחמים בסך הכל, נשלחו לבידוד בבתיהם. בתוך כך מספר חולי הקורונה בצה"ל ממשיך לעלות, ועומד היום על 111 חיילים בסדיר ובקבע. זינוק של כמעט פי שלושה תוך שבוע בלבד. וכתבתנו לענייני חינוך, איילת ברון מוסיפה שנכון לשעה זו. כ-1,900 תלמידים ו-164 מורים מאומתים לקורונה. יושב ראש מנהלי בתי הספר התיכוניים מנשה לוי קרא בתוכניתנו עושים צהריים אנחנו חשים באי-ודאות מוחלטת. בתי הספר כבר סיימו את ההכנות שלהם הרגילות לשנת הלימודים הבאה, ולאור הנתונים האחרונים כולנו בלחץ. כשאני אומר כולנו, זה מנהלים, הורים, תלמידים, מורים, גננות. כעת אנחנו התחלנו לחוש את אי-הוודאות המוחלטת. הביקוש לדירות ממשיך לזנק בשלושת החודשים מרס עד מאי. נמכרו 12,700 דירות חדשות. מדווחת כתבתנו עינב קרנר. על פי נתוני הלשכה המרכזית לסטטיסטיקה, מדובר בעלייה של 15% לעומת שלושת החודשים הקודמים ובניקוי עונתיות, עלייה של יותר מ-20%. מספר העסקאות הגבוה ביותר נרשם באשקלון, בה נמכרו 1,164 דירות חדשות, עלייה של 35% לעומת הרבעון הקודם, אחרי תל אביב, ירושלים ורמת גן. ומזג האוויר ממחר הכבדה בעומסי החום. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. JM in the AM, one of our listeners on the app asked about the weather in Lake Como, Pennsylvania. I would think that that listener would know that now 
Uh, that area of Pennsylvania is known as Lakewood, Pennsylvania. Uh, don't have the weather forecast for Lakewood, Pennsylvania at the moment, but we'll see if our crack research team can find out soon enough. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine is concluding the lecture on uh, the Mishnah Brewer. Here it is at JM in the AM. Plain people, he ignored it. But today, again, since the yeshiva world controls the Jewish world, so then everybody's got to drink it. Everybody has the big shoe in. It became de rigueur because of the fact that that was how the yeshiva world looked at it. He writes many times that you have to ask the experts. For instance, uh, we have a din in Hilchus Pesach not to eat sugar. The Ramah says sugar. So their sugar is not our sugar. And the reason for it was that they would dry the sugar in ovens. Both beet sugar and cane sugar. And they dry it in ovens that were chomets. So therefore, the sugar was not uh, used. So the Ramos says in Hilchus Pesach, uh, that we don't eat uh, sugar. He says, however, if you can be sure that it never touched, never came to contact with Chomet, you could use sugar. So the, so the Mishnah, so, so because of that, for a century, two centuries in Eastern Europe, they didn't use sugar on Pesach. I, I mean, I, uh, today's Pesach is, uh, you know, is beyond anybody's dreams. Uh, I come from a Pesach where we ate, uh, you know, chicken and potatoes for breakfast. We had eight days in a row of fleshics three times a day. Because, you know, how could you, there was no, how could you have the cheese for Pesach? What do you thought? What are you going? You know, couldn't be. So that was in my house, yet I remember. And today, you know, I see by my children, by my grandchildren, you know, if you don't have the, 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 uh, the latest, uh, you know, candy thing, you know, so it's always Pesach, right? They can't, how are they going to exist? So the world has changed. So the mission of Bird discusses here sugar. So he's discussing sugar in 1870, 1880, which is not sugar in 2006. But it certainly was not sugar of the Ramon in 1545. It had also come a long way. And therefore, he says, you should know, you got to ask the experts how they make sugar. You can't pass in the halacha. You have to know what you're doing. So you have to ask them. Then he has a whole question about snuff tobacco, which in the Shmektabak which in Eastern Europe uh, Jews used, and it was addictive. It's just as addictive as smoking. And therefore, how are they going to go eight, nine days without snuff tobacco? So there's a big discussion how to make the smoke, the, how to make the, uh, the tobacco good. So he says, again, we've got to ask the people that make it, right? So in effect, he's saying, you've got to get a heksher for all of these things. And this is the origin of Echsherim for Pesach. 
And the first Hechsher for Pesach was given by Rabbi Yitzchel Chonan in Kovna. He had a member of his community by the name of Rokeach. And Rokeach made two products. One was soap from coconut oil. I don't know if you remember. I remember my, in my house where I grew up, one side of the soap was red and one side was blue. And you broke it in half and the blue side was the milchige one and the red side was the fleshige one and it was coconut oil. Nobody used palm olive. Nobody used any. Nobody. That was it. That was the Jewish home. And the second thing that he gave a hechsher on is that Rokeach made peanut oil for Pesach. Now, in Lithuania, peanuts was not, were not considered kidneys. The Lubavitchers still today eat peanuts. Somehow it entered into the Jewish mind that peanuts are kidneys. And therefore, there are many people that don't use peanuts or peanut oil. I remember when I was the head of the OU, so the OU, we had Rakeach, we always used to give the Hechsher for Pesach even on the peanut oil. And people called me, and rabbis called me, and they said, how can you give the Hechsher on peanuts? So I told them, I said, listen, Rabbi Yitzchel Chonan gave the Hechsher. So barrel wine is going to take off the Hechsher? Are you out of your mind? I said, you know, I'm going to meet him one day, and he's going to say, you took off the Hechsher? I said, so don't buy it, right? You know, it's a free country. But I'm not going to take it off. Until today, the peanut oil still has the OU. So he discusses that, Shaila, in the Mission of Brewer. So he's trying to get a handle, so to speak, on the things that are occurring by him. He speaks about the peckle tabak. So he said that the problem with the peckle tabak, very interesting, the snuff tobacco needed a hechsher, he said. Why? Why should snuff tobacco? He said because two things they did with it. They mixed it with whiskey. You know, so that when you put it up your nose, you really got the, the full effect. Right? They dipped it in whiskey. Or, he said, sometimes they dipped it in non-Jewish wine. And non-Jewish wine is also, you can, you're not allowed to have uh, uh, direct benefit from it, etc. So, therefore, he said, so you have to check. The main thing is, he says, you have to check it out to see whether or not these things are good. And this is the origin of the idea, which is so widespread in the world today that we cannot imagine that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't give Echsherim. Right? How could it be? But it didn't start till then. You know, we're talking 1870, 1880. That's when it began. And it's also part of the process of a great uh, processing plants, food production, etc., don't forget, there wasn't, you know, there were no supermarkets, etc. You went you, every day you had to prepare the food, and most people prepared the food from their own garden or from their own animals. So a whole different society that we have, completely different. So therefore, he is, uh, to, we, we could say he is the creator of the cautious industry, which is a big industry today. Very, very big industry. Now, as I mentioned, this book uh, swept the boards. And it's been republished hundreds of times. Uh, it's been republished so many times that the family gave up trying to enforce the copyright. 
There was a time when, the, when Mendel Zaks was still alive, the Chafetz Chaim's son-in-law, who was a Rosh Yeshiva in uh, in New York. So he had the copyright, and they tried to enforce the copyright. But uh, it, it, it just it burgeoned to an extent. So the book today is more popular than it has ever been. But the book has changed the Jewish world. It's made the Jewish world yeshivish. It's made the Jewish world book-oriented and not the rabbi-oriented. And also, it provides a springboard for ideas as to how to deal with new problems. Because the book took on the, the new problems of 1870, of 1880 just as we have to take on the new problems of 2006. So it really is a landmark book. It's a book that makes a great, great difference in the Jewish world. And it's a book that, you know, publishers say it has legs to it. It keeps on going. And because of that, therefore, it's of great importance. And by knowing... uh, by knowing if, if, you're, if you're a Mishnah Brewer, a Jew, uh, so then he, that's what he promised you, that, right? That he would get you uh, food for your soul. So uh, that is really the purpose of the book. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact... There we go. Information is 1-800-499-WEIN. 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. 13 minutes after 7 o'clock, Wednesday morning. It's JM in the AM. My name is Nahum Siegel. Uh, the bulk, as we always say, of our uh, nine days programming is the, um, is the are the lectures of our barrel wine. You can get them at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. This listener says, Rabbi Wine, always interesting and love the accent, but I got to say I miss all the jam and fabulous music selections. Yeah, agreed. We also miss the fabulous music selections, and hopefully they will return very, very soon. Uh, Rabbi Wine's next lecture in this series is the one on Mesilat Yesharim. Mesilat Yesharim, yet another important uh, essential classic, as he calls them, um, in the um, annals of... uh, Jewish history. Uh, that is how we will uh, uh, kick things off now for our next segment. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine and Masilas Yasharim. Rabbi Goldwasser is coming up. Plenty more on a Wednesday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. Uh, we are accustomed in the Jewish world uh, that people uh, make the difference, and that certainly is true. But also, uh, as I hope this series will illustrate, there are books that make a difference as well. And uh, books have a uh, cumulative effect. A person, uh, under all circumstances, has a limited lifespan. And because of that, his generation, or maybe even the next generation, can benefit from that person. But uh, 100 years later, 200 years later, 300 years later, uh, no one remembers the person. And therefore, uh, the person's influence, to a certain extent, is diffused, it's mitigated. 
However, books are pretty much eternal, uh, so that even after a few hundred years, uh, the book itself is still here, and its influence is still present and can be considered uh, alive, so to speak, because of its uh, value and currency. Uh, the two main books that we know in the Jewish world are naturally the Bible, the Tanakh, and the Talmud. Those two books are the basis of uh, Judaism as we know it. But these are other books uh, of a different nature which uh, have a profound influence on the Jewish world. Tonight's uh, book, uh, the one that I'm going to discuss tonight, is the Mesilat Yusharim, uh, the book that was written by Ramosha Chaim Litzato, uh, published uh, close to 300 years ago. Ramosha uh, Chaim Litzato, just a, uh, a whole uh, biography of him that I once spoke about, but uh, it, uh, he lived a very controversial and short life, a very tragic life. Uh, he was uh, a Kabbalist at a time when uh, there was great persecution of Kabbalists because of the Shabsite Svi disaster. Uh, he was misunderstood. Uh, he was placed into Cherem, first in Italy, later in France. He was driven into uh, Holland, where he was a lens grinder. And uh, then he was forced to leave Holland because his uh, enemies pursued him. Uh, Jewish people are a tough people. We wouldn't be here if we weren't, but on the other hand, it's not easy to be with the Jewish people, especially if you're a different type of person. And he was a different type of person. He did not have a beard. He uh, wrote plays. Uh, he, uh, he was very, very spiritual. And uh, he came, therefore, he uh, migrated to the land of Israel came to the city of uh, Tzfat and later Tiberias. And then the cholera epidemic uh, that broke out, he and his entire family died. And he was uh, about 42 years old when that happened. So uh, we wouldn't know anything about him because in his generation he was not uh, venerated. You know, the strange thing about history is that it's uh, it lowers people and it raises people so that uh, you have to wait a while for the verdict to come in. And many people who in their lifetime were considered to be uh, outstanding, great, influential uh, in the run of history are lowered. And many people who in their lifetime uh, suffered the indignities and were not very well respected in the run of history are raised. He is the example of someone who was, so to speak, rehabilitated uh, and the rehabilitation begins with the Gon of Vilna 
and it culminates in the Musser movement of the 18, middle 1800s, late 1800s in Lithuania and the Lithuanian yeshivot. After he was rehabilitated, so to speak, so then he became popular. So not only this book, which is the main book, but his other works as well, which are even more controversial, are today studied uh, universally. And uh, I would hazard to say that most of the people who read it or study it or who teach it are unaware of the fact that it's a controversial work. So uh, we can say uh, heaven voted for him. And uh, heaven usually has the last vote in all of these things. Now, the book, the Mesilat Yeshorim, the Gon of Vilna said, in the first ten chapters, he said, there's not an extra word. The book is a, a marvelous work of conciseness. And we can also say that the Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Litzato, to a certain extent, is the father of modern Hebrew. He does not write rabbinic Hebrew. The Hebrew that he writes is pure. It's a throwback almost to Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah or to the Mishnah itself, that type of Hebrew. But again, uh, the structure of the Hebrew and the structure of the sentence uh, makes it uh, a harbinger, a forerunner of modern Hebrew uh, as we uh, know it today. So they're just the language itself. Uh, is itself a major thing in the book. I want to share with you his introduction to the book because the introduction uh, is a classic. Uh, in the yeshivas, they used to say, uh, my Rebbe used to say, well, he said, if you don't want to study the book, at least study the introduction because the introduction says it all. And here I'm reading to you a, a translation by... Uh, uh, Yosef Liebler, there are many translations into almost every language in the world. It's one of the most translated books uh, of all of the Jewish books in the world. It's been translated into French, into Spanish, to Russian. And uh, here is the English version of it. The author says, I have written this book not to teach people what they do not know, but rather to remind them of what they already know and clearly understand. And uh, that's the thrust of the book. The thrust of the book is that I'm going to tell you everything that you yourself know, but for some reason, because of your uh, selective memory, uh, because of the fact that uh, it's inconvenient to remember these things, uh, so you put it out of your mind. So I'm here to remind you, for within most of my words you will find general rules of life that most people know with certainty. However, the degree that these rules are well known and are true self-evident, to that degree are they routinely overlooked or people choose to forget about them altogether. You know, so we know, you know, we're not supposed to holler at our wives, right? Or we know that, uh, you know, you're not supposed to uh, shortchange somebody. Or there's a million things that we know. 
But somehow, when it comes to doing these things, we're not in, the contr- in control of ourselves. So this is a book about self-control, about self-discipline. And really, it's a book about being a good human being. Therefore, the benefit to be obtained from this book cannot be derived from a single reading, but it can be derived from a single lecture. (laughs) For it is possible that after just one reading, the reader will find that he has learned little that he didn't know before. So then what does he need the book for? Rather, its benefit is a function of continuous review. In this manner, one is reminded of those things which by nature people are prone to forget. And he will take to heart the duties that he prefers to overlook. His famous example, really the classic example, he says, uh, you can imagine yourself in a maze. Now, uh, one of the uh, uh, sports of kings in the medieval and even later times was to construct a maze. A maze is, uh, you know, uh, a hundred different paths. You come into the maze and then you lose your way. And how do you find your way out? Uh, if you go to Hampton Court Palace of Henry VIII, there's a maze there that uh, I got lost in. There, at least, at 4 o'clock, they send somebody to fetch you. <laughs> but uh, the, a maze was used many times as a, uh, a means of execution of people. They would take the prisoner and let him go in the maze, and uh, he got lost in it. He starved to death. He, uh, he died of thirst. They never came to fetch him. So he says, this world is a maze. I think that's where the world, word amazing comes from. It's the same word. It's, uh, we're all caught in a maze. And every day we make decisions. Take this path, take this path. The end of the maze is naturally our judgment, uh, what heaven thinks of us. How did we get out of the maze? Or did we get lost in the maze? He says the only way to attack a maze, and that I also saw this in the palace in Copenhagen in Denmark. So there they have a tower by the maze. And you climb the tower, you're able to see how to get out, right? Because you have this overview and you see which are the paths that will lead you out of the maze. So he says here, this book is the tower to the maze. That's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to instruct you how to get out of this maze of life that we are all involved in and how to find our way. Now, where do we want to find our way to? So here he says there's an amazing b'risa. There's an amazing piece in the Talmud, in the Meseches Avodah Zorah, written by Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer. Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer is one of the resident holy men of the Talmud. 
The Talmud tells us that Reb Pinchas ben Yoria was such a righteous person that even his donkey would not eat straw uh, that did not, uh, that the tithe, that the truma and the maestras were not taken from it. He had a donkey that only ate badats. It knew exactly what it was. So the Gemara always says, Ma behemtam shel tzadikim. You can see that even the dumb animals of the righteous are endowed with an intuition as to what is right and what is wrong and don't uh, make mistakes. So the righteous, certainly, we have to consider them in that vein. So Repinchas ben Yoyer is buried uh, in the new cemetery in Malot, at the, uh, in Tzvat, uh, at the bottom. The old cemetery is on top, and he's buried at the bottom. Next to him are buried the 11 girls that were killed in Malot by the Arab terrorists about 20 years ago, not more. And there are many customs regarding the grave of Repinchas ben Yoyer. It's a very visited grave. So Repinchas ben Yoyer, who does not appear in the Talmud in very many instances, there's very little halacha that's quoted from him in the Talmud. But he said this b'risa, very interesting b'risa. He describes the steps that lead a person to holiness. That's the b'risa. You want to be kadosh, you want to be holy, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And you cannot just get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to be holy. Like you can't get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm a brain surgeon. Or today I'm going to run the marathon. In order to do any of that, you need training. You need experience. You have to be able to do it. I had the people in my shul in Muncie that ran the New York marathon every year, but they would run 60 miles every week. So if you run 60 miles every week, so then you got a chance to run the 26 miles of the marathon. But if you get up in the morning and you say, today I'm going to run the marathon, right, then you're, you resemble me, you're not going to make it. It just is not going to happen. So Pepinchas ben Yoyer says the same thing is true about holiness. A Jew wants to be holy, I'm going to tell you how. And here it is. The first thing is Torah. That's the starting point. Knowledge of Torah. Torah mevia lidei zehirus. Torah brings one to being careful, to being vigilant. Leads one to being, uh, uh, not to take unnecessary risks in life. Zehirus mevia lidei zrizus. Then vigilance brings one to zrizus, to enthusiasm, to alacrity, to industry, to work at it. Then zrizus mevialide nikias. That brings a person to cleanliness. He means here spiritual cleanliness, though he talks about physical cleanliness as well. Then nikias mevialide precious. Cleanliness can bring a person to abstain from certain things in life that are not good for him. 
precious may violate tahara, then that abstinence can bring one to purity. Tahara may violate chesidus, then one comes to the level of piety. Chesidus may violate anova. Piety brings a person to humility. Humility brings a person to fear of sin. Fear of sin brings a person to holiness. Holiness brings one to Ruach HaKodesh, the divine inspiration. So that's the Bryce of Repinchas Ben Yoya. JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine. On the topic or on the series of essential classics, the topic is the book entitled Mesilas Yesharim. Wednesday morning, JM in the AM. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. We're in our New York City studios. A special hello to uh, our friends at the Inbal Hotel. They um, treated us royally like they're doing for 1% of their population who are from outside of Israel. And they treated us royally like they do for 99% of their population that are now from Israel. (laughs) The hotel is 99% Israeli guests, which was quite unusual compared to what we're used to. Uh, But they just did another remarkable job for us. Beautiful accommodations. Hotel looks better than ever. And I thank them very, very much. Thank you to Ronnie Timzit and the entire staff at the Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonishmas Harav Zevin Rezavalevi, and the Zechonishmas Esther Basar Rezavalevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The great Klosenberger Rebbe once said, When a Jew says, Ani Mamin Bemuna Shalema, when a Jew says, I believe with perfect faith, what is he saying? He's saying, Hashem, you can testify that if we didn't believe that Mashiach would come today, we would not find the Koach to get up in the morning. The one thing that keeps us going is the hope that Hayom Hu Yavoy, that today he might come. As long as we are not meriting to see this, we are still Miss Avel. We mourn on Tishabov, on the two Charbonos, on the two destructions that happen, and on the Golos that still continues. As part of this mourning, we remove the Parochas from the Aaron Kodesh in Shul, why? What did the Parochas do wrong? What's the basis for this minag? The Talmud in Gittin relates that when Titus Harasha, the evil Titus, came into the Hechel, he stabbed the Parochas with his sword. Miraculously, blood spurted forth. Seeing the blood, Titus believed that he had killed the Ribbon He killed Hashem. He therefore took the Parochas, formed it, into a large basket and placed within it all the kalim of the Besamikdosh, which he put on a ship. According to the Gemara, Titus was subsequently punished in an unnatural manner. A gnat ate away through his nostrils until it got to his brain. When the parochus is taken down, the Sifrei Torah behind it are revealed. As we know, there is a tremendous amount of trembling of Kedusha concerning a Sefer Torah. Just as one would tear Kriya if, God forbid, they were in mourning, so too one tears Kriya 
if they see a Sefer Torah that has been burnt. This is for any Yid, any Jew that passes on and someone else is present at the time of Yetzias Neshama, then those present have to tear Kriya. They have to tear their garment. What does this teach us? It teaches us that every Yid, it doesn't matter who they are, is like a Sefer Torah. The Baal Shem Tov once said, with the same love that a person kisses a Sefer Torah, that same love is how we should look at every Yid. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. and the A.M., my thanks to Rabbi Goldwasser, of course. Uh, it is uh, a Wednesday morning broadcast on the 14th of July, the 5th of Menachemav. We are in our nine days format here at J.M. and the A.M., and I thank all of you around the world for tuning in. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nachum Segal Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. And um, feel free to be in touch with us by email, nachum at nachumsegal.com. And I, um, I thank all of you for tuning in. We are, uh, we are in the middle of Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on the Mesilas Yesharim, one of the most important books of the last few hundred years when it comes to Essential Classics. It's part of the Essential Classics series by Rabbi Beryl Wine. His uh, lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com. Wednesday morning, JM in the AM. And there are many customs regarding the grave of Repinchas ben Yoyer. It's a very visited grave. So Repinchas ben Yoyer, who does not appear in the Talmud in very many instances, there's very little halacha that's quoted from him in the Talmud, but he said this b'risa, very interesting b'risa. He describes the steps that lead a person to holiness. That's the b'risa. You want to be kadosh, you want to be holy, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And you cannot just get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to be holy. Like you can't get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm a brain surgeon. Or today I'm going to run the marathon. In order to do any of that, you need training. You need experience. You have to be able to do it. I had the people in my shul in Muncie that uh, ran the New York Marathon every year, but they would run 60 miles every week. So if you run 60 miles every week, so then you got a chance to run the 26 miles of the marathon. But if you get up in the morning and you say, today I'm going to run the marathon, right, then you're, you resemble me, you're not going to make it. It just is not going to happen. So Pepimchus ben Yoyer says the same thing is true about holiness. A Jew wants to be holy, I'm going to tell you how. And here it is. The first thing is Torah. That's the starting point. Knowledge of Torah. Torah mivia lidei zehirus. Torah brings one to being careful, to being vigilant leads one to being, uh, uh, not to take unnecessary risks in life. Zehirus mevil et Then vigilance brings one 
to zrizus, to enthusiasm, to alacrity, to industry, to work at it. Then zrizus mevialidei nikias. That brings a person to cleanliness. He means here spiritual cleanliness, though he talks about physical cleanliness as well. Then nikias mevialidei prishus. Cleanliness can bring a person to abstain from certain things in life that are not good for him. Precious may a tahara, then that abstinence can bring one to purity. Tahara may a chesidus, then one comes to the level of piety. Chesidus may a anova, piety brings a person to humility. Humility brings a person to fear of sin. Fear of sin brings a person to holiness. Holiness brings one to Ruach HaKodesh, the divine inspiration. So that's the Brisa Repinchas Ben Yoya. The book takes every one of those attributes, every one of those concepts, and defines them for us. So there are three sections in every one. First is a definition. Secondly is how do we do it in practice. The third thing is what brings us to aspire and to want to have those attributes. So I'm not going to go through all of uh, this uh, book, all of these things, but there are selected parts that are just so uh, brilliant in the language, etc., uh, that uh, everyone should, uh, as he says, uh, assimilate it within one's own psyche and within one's own soul and repeat it over and over again because it will be a step up the ladder. It will get us up the tower that will be able to us to see how to get out of the maze. This, by the way, was... And, the, and uh, was the primer of the Musser movement. Uh, if you saw Salanter and the Musser movement, and especially how it was in the yeshivas, I remember when I was in the yeshiva yet, uh, we devoted uh, 15, 20 minutes every day to the study of this book. And uh, by the, the, uh, the Bali Musser held that this is the book that more than any other work defines what it is to be a good Jew. Uh, when I was the head of the yeshiva in Muncie, uh, I would teach this book 15 minutes a day to uh, about 100 unwilling students. But over the years, I have received many, many comments. Rebbe, I remember what you said. I remember this. I remember that. Because uh, life, uh, life when you're 15 is different when you're 50. And uh, this book is good at 15, but it's great at 50. Because then it, it gives you this picture of how to get over what the purpose of life is. So let's just talk about a few things. He says, God created the world with Midas Hadin, as we know, the measure of justice, and also Midas Arachamim. It's based on the famous Rashi in the beginning of Chumash Breshis, 
that God, it says, Breshis Boro Elohim. Elohim is the name of God that represents justice. He saw that if this is a world that everybody has to be measured in a just manner, in a legal manner, the world cannot exist. Human beings are too frail. They're too prone to, for error. It's interesting. God didn't remake the human beings. He remade the system. Because he could have made a stronger human being, right? He could have created everybody to be the Chafetz Chaim. He didn't do that. So, Omad, the Rebbe Shalom, therefore, Kaviyochu, arranged that it's Midas Arachamim. And that's what we say, Hashem, Hashem. The Yud Kei Vov the four-letter name of God, that's representative of God's mercy. It's not representative of justice. So the question arises, how, does, how did the two get along? So to ask that question of God is really not a problem because we don't understand God anyway, so he somehow makes it work. But we are supposed to emulate God. Imitatio Dei, we are the imitation of the Creator. In being the imitation of the Creator, we also have to subscribe to justice and to mercy. We have it in this week's Sedra by Avram Avinu, Lasos Tzdoko Mishpat, to do Tzdoko, righteousness, goodness, and Mishpat, justice. Well, how do you combine, right? If I'm doing Tzdoko, it's not Mishpat, right? If I'm doing Mishpat, it's not Tzdoko. God expects us somehow to be able to combine it. So he asked the question. You might ask how the attribute of compassion enters into this world, since in all cases justice is so precise. We believe that the Rabboni Sholem is medagdek, is exact, and that no act goes unrewarded or unpunished and that the Lord is uh, the supreme accountant, so to speak, and doesn't cook the books, doesn't overlook anything. So in that world of justice, where is mercy? The answer is that the attribute of compassion is what undoubtedly holds up the world without which the world cannot exist at all. So therefore, we cannot have a world built only on justice. And a human being cannot have a life built only on justice. Because if he does, he cannot stay married, he cannot be a parent, he cannot be in business, he cannot be a teacher, he cannot live in a community, cannot be a member of society because there's no room for it. If it has to be pure justice. So he says, nonetheless, this does not rule out the function of the attribute of justice. For according to the letter of the law, and here he introduces a great idea in Judaism, he says, the sinner should be punished immediately, 
subsequent to a sinful act without any delay. The example he gives is a person, God forbid, puts his hand into a fire, right? So he's burned immediately. In the physical world, we see that immediately, right? He, he, he uses a knife that's too sharp and it slips, so he cuts himself immediately. So if we had a system of the world that was pure justice, so if a person commits a sin, so a bolt of lightning should strike him from heaven, which is what we would like to see. Somebody said to me today, you know, there should be a rainstorm on, the, on Friday, right? There should be, you know, 16 inches of rain should fall with hail. I said, you're foolish. God's not going to do that. It'll be a beautiful day. It'll be fine. Because it doesn't work that way. If it worked that way, then none of us would have any excuse whatsoever. We wouldn't have freedom of choice. What gives us freedom of choice is that it does not happen that way. It's not instantaneous justice. Furthermore, he said the punishment should be meted out with anger since it is directed against one who has rebelled against the, de- the words of the Creator. And there should be no way whatsoever to atone for sin. How can a person rectify what he has ruined once he has committed the act? Right? You broke... Uh, somebody uh, once... We, we had a... Uh, a nice ceramic lamp in our house in Miami Beach that my wife was proud of. And uh, when we moved from Chicago to Miami Beach, we didn't even give the lamp to the movers that came in the car with us because uh, somehow there was a sentimental attachment to the lamp. And then uh, a guest came to the house, tripped over the wire, and smashed the lamp. which was a good lesson for all of us. And my wife uh, smiled sweetly and said, oh, that's, you know, that's, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. that lamp was a cheap lamp anyway. So, but you can't put that lamp back together again. Right? That's never going to happen. So it should be that way with sin also, he says. If we sin to God, we've broken the lamp. So the lamp can't be put back together again. Can anyone purge from reality the act that has been done? Therefore, he says, that's that's what the act of compassion does. That's what it means, Midas Arachamim. Beautiful idea, explanation of how Judaism views things. The attribute of compassion yields the opposite of what is mentioned above. Time is extended to the sinner. We say it on Yom Kippur, in Nilead, Yomoso, Techakelo, to the last breath, God has patience. The possibility of repenting will be granted to the sinner. And that the act of repentance is equivalent to the uprooting of the deed itself. It's like you never, it's like the lamp comes whole again. 
was all put together. That's what Midas Arachami means. So again, the three points, Midas Arachami, there's no instantaneous punishment. Midas Arachami means that there is the chance for the person to repent. And the third thing is that the repentance restores what was destroyed. What a concept. Gives a human being hope. Otherwise, we would all be terribly despondent. Tomorrow we'll do better. I can fix what went wrong. This means that since the penitent recognizes a sin, admits guilt, ponders the wrongdoing, repents and totally regrets all that was done from the outset, this regret is so complete that he wishes that the deed never had been done and he is filled with anguish, then the uprooting of the deed will occur and it will be an act, an effective act of atonement for him. So he says this is one step on the ladder. This is a person that has the ability, but only if one is able to admit that the lamp is broken. We have the ability to look at the broken lamp and say it's whole. Or to say I didn't do it. Or to say what difference does it make? So the basis, he says, is this self-recognition of what went wrong so that we can improve ourselves. And that the basis of God's relationship with us is this mita sarachamim, this mita of compassion. He then says, and that's why the Bali Musar were so uh, enamored of the Sefer, is because everything he says about our relationship between man and God is also our relationship between humans and humans. So you have to be able to forgive others also. You have to be able to, uh, to not deal in anger with others. You have to be able to be patient with others. All of which goes against our nature. And therefore he says, Midas Arachamim, that's why, just a brilliant idea, that's why the world was created first in Midas Adin. Because that's our nature. Our nature is, this guy cut me off in the lane. At the next stoplight, I'm going to cut him off in the lane. I'll show him. That's why we have all the wonderful things in the traffic here in Israel. Because everybody is, you know, miata, right? Who are you? You cut me, I'll cut you. And sometimes you see it on the road that it's frightening. The way people jockey with each other becomes a test of will. So first, we are born innately selfish. We're born innately with Midas Adin. As the Gemara states, Yikov Adinas Ahor. Let the justice split the mountain. I don't care what the consequences are. Which we also see is that people don't care what the consequences are. And therefore, many times people in doing what they think is good for them, are doing things that are terribly counterproductive to them. 
That's true in the political world. It's true in the business world. It's true even in the synagogue world. So therefore, he says, God tempered the world with Midas Arachamim, which came later. Midas Arachamim is something that mitigates the Midas Adin. Well, just as that's the relationship of us with God and the relationship of how God created the world, so too is it the relationship between humans and humans. So I have to be willing not to be angry immediately, not to make snap judgments about people. Famous uh, story uh, about, uh, they say it about Reb Chaim Sanzer, the... Uh, famous Divrei Chaim, who was a very uh, precocious and mischievous child. So when he was uh, uh, six or seven years old, they already arranged a marriage for him, which was common amongst them, you know. And then naturally wouldn't be consummated for another 10, 12 years, whatever it was. But, you know, the, so they had the vort, right? They had the, uh, the, the engagement party. So he, he, he walks in, he's six years old, you know, and they dressed him up in the, in the outfit, and, you know, and he walks in and he tells his father, he says, that's my father-in-law. He points at him. So his father said, how do you know? He said, I hate him already. <laughs> you call him Shane Feint. So that's, you know, that's immediate judgment, right? You see somebody the first time and that's your judgment. But Midas Arachamim says, well, maybe, you know, we'll give him a chance. And if the person changes, so we accept that the person changes. And we don't come and say, but I remember when, which is an Easter in the Torah to do. It's an Easter to tell somebody, I remember when you sinned. I remember, you know, people come, I remember, you know, the teacher in fifth grade threw you out. You're not allowed to say that. And you're certainly not allowed to say that to a convert. Or you're not allowed to say it to someone who calls himself a baltruva. You're not allowed to say it to anybody. And you have to realize that if the person really changed, then what went on before never happened. Now that's a big bill. But that's what Midas Arachami means. And that's what the Gemara means when it says, Mahu Rachum Afato Rachum. God is merciful, you also have to be merciful. And we will measure merciful in those terms. So we think merciful is, you know, I, I rock the baby to sleep. Or I give charity to the panhandler. Today, uh, a con woman came to my house. I knew she was a con woman. I gave her money anyway. I told her, you know, I, I'm paying you for the act. You did a very good job. I'm going to here, you know, you entertained me for 10 minutes, so I don't want you to leave empty-handed. And I gave her, and I gave her a good, you know. That's rachum, right? That's a measure of a, you know, you have to be able to do, because I'll be dean, I should call, I should tie her up and call the police, right?
So this is the concept that he discusses here. Now, he says, service of God is not on the outside, it's on the inside. Which was a precept of the Bali Musr and a precept of, let's say, the Kotzker Chassidim. There was always a precept, right? The Kotzker Chassidim on Tishabov used to put chalk on their lips so that people would think that maybe they ate. But a Bali Musr, you never saw anything from the outside. My father-in-law, blessed memory, always told me he lived with the Chofetz Chaim. He said when he lived with the Chofetz Chaim, he said he was a plain person. He never saw anything. It was all hidden. It was all on the inside. Today we live in a world where it's all on the outside. The Gaon of Vilnius says that at the end of time, at the end, uh, when we come closer to the Messianic times, he said it's all chitzonius. It's all on the outside. It's the uniform, it's this, it's all the shtick, that's what it is. But it's really supposed to be all on the inside. He says, you already know, however, that is what is most desirable for the service of the Creator is the yearning of the heart and the pining of the soul within us. David HaMelech said, as a deer cries longingly for brooks of water, my soul yearns for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the eternal, the living God. When will I be judged worthy to come and appear before the eternal? That's an inner feeling. Most of the important things in life are inner feelings. It's not things that are expressed. It's hard to express it. And the love between spouses, the love between parents and children. Love. Yeah. People keep on saying, I love you, then I'm, I'm nervous about it. Because that's not it. One of the uh, travesties that's occurred because of uh, the skewed nature of society generally is that there are no internal feelings anymore. It all has to be, you know, everything on the outside. For the person in whom this desire is not sufficiently kindled, it is advisable that he actively arouse himself. This will lead to the result that the desire will sooner or later become part of his nature. For the external physical movement may eventually stimulate the internal one. And it is the internal domain directly that defines his relationship with the Creator. Another idea. He says here, there is not a person, no matter what his circumstances, whether he be poor or rich, healthy or sick, who does not perceive daily Numerous wonders and acts of benevolence in his situation. A wealthy person or a healthy person is indebted to the Almighty automatically for his good health, for his wealth. A poor person is also indebted, for even in his poverty, 
he is still sustained by the eternal miraculously and wondrously and has not allowed him to die of hunger. And the same thing, a sick person is strengthened during his relentless sickness and suffering. And the Lord does not allow him to descend immediately to the grave. It is the same thing of a similar nature, which means there is not a single person who should fail to recognize one's indebtedness to the Creator. Here he gives the idea of not being kofui tolva, of ingratitude. Ingratitude is the supreme sin in Jewish life. The whole idea of respect to parents, respect to teachers, is based upon the idea of gratitude. Because whatever my father and mother are, they gave me life. Without them, I'm not here. So gratitude is the famous foundation of Jewish life. And that gratitude to people and gratitude to the Creator. So many times, I remember I once asked uh, one of my rabbeim when I was uh, young and clever, why do they, you know, you ask somebody how he feels, he says, Baruch Hashem. What kind of answer is that? Say, you know, I feel good. I don't feel so good today. You know, I got to go to the doctor. I'm, yeah. What answer is Baruch Hashem? When uh, one of my grandsons was three years old, he said to me, Zadie, he said, do you know what God's first name is? I said, no. What is it? He said, Baruch. Because everybody says Baruch Hashem. So he answered me. He said the fact that he can answer you is Baruch Hashem. The fact that he's there to answer you. So you have to bless God for that alone. The fact of gratitude. And uh, we see in the Parsha of the week... uh, that the Lot uh, is destroyed, Lot is destroyed because of ingratitude. He has no gratitude towards Avraham. Avraham made him a wealthy man. Avraham saved him. Avraham went to war for him. Avraham restored him. He had nothing. Zero. He didn't even, you know, he didn't send him even a card for Hanukkah. Nothing. Zero. The Lord doesn't like ingratitude. Whatever he needs and whatever is essential comes from the Blessed One, Holy One be he, and from no other. And therefore he surely will not be able to afford ignoring the service of the Blessed One because that would be the height of ingratitude. That's the same thing with people. So in our world, it's a different society, so I don't want to be misunderstood. But I always mention uh, uh, to the young men that I teach, uh, because of the fact that I think it's become more difficult in our time, married life, than it once was, for whatever reason. So the Gemara says that there was a Tana of Yesi who had a wife, 
was from Robinson land. I mean, she was it. She was a shrew. And she even insulted him publicly. Mimar says that once when he was saying the, uh, teaching the class, the shir and the yeshiva, she burst in and insulted him. So his Talmidim said to him, give her a get. Divorce her. Get rid of her. He said, give her a get? He said, is it not sufficient that she has borne my children and that she takes care of me and that she saves me from sin? So uh, life is built on gratitude. Not always built on ingratitude. So the idea of service of God is gratitude. Now that's not to say, I don't want to be misunderstood, that's not to say that divorce is not justified at times. But it's only to express a certain outlook, the outlook of gratitude that has to exist between people in a family. Now he talks about money. So he says the two things that people desire are money and physical pleasure. Those are the two big industries in the world, right? Finance industry. You hear the ads on the radio, right? If you got extra shekel, come for a private interview with me, you know, I'll show you how we make more money, right? So more money has no limit. As I'll say, Misha Yeshlomona wrote to Masai, and he has 100 ones, 200, there's no end to that. So, and the second thing is physical desires, right? Good time, pleasures, which leads to an immoral world because there's no limit to a good time either. And the truth of the matter is it's very hard to have a good time because, uh, unfortunately, all of your problems come with you to have a good time. I used to see it in... Uh, my synagogue that uh, people Saturday night, you know, so they went out to have a good time. So they have to drive, it's three and a half hours in the car, back and forth to have the good time. It costs like four or five hundred dollars to have the good time. You come home dead tired, you got to drive the babysitter home to have the good time. By the time you're done, you didn't have such a good time. It's hard to have a good time. Klolo Sheldover, he says. He discusses here all of the, the problems that, uh, that people fall into because of money. Let us summarize. Just as the desire for money is great, so too are the obstacles it places before us. A person must probe deeply and with great thoroughness to completely cleanse himself of them. And if he purges the desire as well, he may regard himself as having attained a lofty elevation. Now, Judaism does not preach poverty. We are not Christians. We do not preach poverty as a way of life. On the other hand, money has to be put into the proper perspective. And if it is not, it destroys us. I have been witness to so many families 
destroyed by wealth. And especially if uh, the father dies and uh, the brothers feel that, that the distribution was not equitable between them, so then there's no limit and the, to the lawyers and the lawsuits and the Dine Torah and the fact that the cousins then don't speak to each other. I know families that it goes down three, four generations. So if the man would have died poor, they would, they, they, everything would be fine. But the problem is that they each had $15 million anyway. Uh, but he left four uh, buildings to one and three buildings to the other, and so that's it, right? Many are able to become pious by very many branches of piety. Here he talks to us, Dugri, right in the pulpit. Yet when it comes to money, they are not able to reach any sphere of perfection. Kashris and Shabbos and everything is perfect. But when it comes to money, it can't, can't deal with, with the temptation. Can't deal with it. And now he talks about physical pleasures. And basically he says in life one has to drive defensively. Don't, don't put yourself in situations with temptation. By applying the rule to the area of promiscuity, the sages therefore prohibited anything that is a form of promiscuity or that resembles it regardless of the medium involved, whether it be physical contact, sight, speech, hearing, and eventually even thought. And therefore... The Torah prevented, he said, obscenities in speech. The Torah prevented frivolous conversations. If one were to whisper in your ear and tell you what our sages have said about obscene speech was only meant to frighten people away and prevent them from sinning, and that this only pertains to a hot-blooded person whose obscenities arouse him to desire, but that is insignificant regarding someone who merely says them in jest, tell him, you are speaking the words of the evil inclination itself. The verse of the Torah mentions neither idol worship, nor adultery, nor killing, but rather speech. Flattery, slander, vile language, obscenities, all of these are transgressions of the mouth that relate to speech. And therefore the truth is that our rabbis of blessed memory have said that the uttering of obscenities is literally the promiscuity of speech. And although there is no punishment for these sins, 
Nevertheless, they are forbidden in their own right, apart from the role they cause in leading one to transgress. And that's Chofetz Chaim's Shorim. And that's why the books were written in the late 1800s, because the Mitzil Shorim came out 100 years before. Why didn't somebody write the Shulchan Aruch and Loshan Oroh 100 years earlier? There were Gedolim that were as great as the Chofetz Chaim in previous generations. But he lit the match. And because he lit the match and it was studied so widely in Lithuania, so people followed up on it. Finally, he says, great idea. Finally, the only one, blessed be he, loves only those who love Israel and Jews. To the extent that one increases his love for Israel, God will increase his love for that person. It's hard to love Israel. It's hard to love Israel, the state. It's hard to love Israel, the people. It's hard to love Israel, you know, the person that's sitting next to me. Nevertheless, the measure of how much a human being can love another human being is the measure of God's love for that person. Now, for instance, Christianity is a religion built on love. But uh, that love uh, turns out to be murderous throughout history. What we mean by love here is how you treat others. And I think it's important to understand that in all the turmoil of this week, where uh, unfortunately uh, uh, we are the losers on all fronts. The true shepherds of Israel, whom the Holy One, blessed be he, holds dear, are those who sacrifice themselves for the people of Israel beseeching and laboring on behalf of the peace and well-being of their brothers, constantly standing in the breach to pray for the repeal of harsh decrees against them and for the gates of blessing to open wide on their behalf. This can be compared to a father who loves no one more than the person who has shown genuine love towards the father's sons. Human nature attests to this. He says that was the task of the Kohen Godol in the Beit HaMikdash, to physically show his love to the Jewish people. And he said that is the task of all Jews to be able to somehow achieve that level of loving others. Again, this book... uh, is uh, a bestseller, but it's not just a bestseller. It is a book that has influenced generations of Jews, especially Jewish scholars. I mentioned the Musser movement, Lithuanian Jews, but it's today it is all over the Jewish world. There are many more things in the book. I just want to conclude uh, with... Uh, 
so to speak, his final words. And you, my dear reader, I realize that you would recognize, as I do, that in this work I have not come to the end of all of the ideas regarding piety, and that I have not said all that can be said, for there is no end to the matter or limit to one's reflections. But I have said something about each particular component of the brysa of this ladder upon which this work has been based. May this serve as a beginning and a gateway to a broader study of these matters, since their structure has now been revealed to you and their paths have been exposed before your eyes, allowing us to walk securely along them. In reference to things of this nature, it has been stated, the learned person will learn and increase his knowledge, and the contemplative person will acquire greater profundity. And one who seeks to be purified will be assisted from heaven, for the eternal will impart wisdom from his mouth, will come knowledge and understanding to that person, to direct each person's path before the Creator so that he can safely escape the maze. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. J.M. in the A.M. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures. This one on Masilas Yasharim is 1-800-499-WEIN. 1-800-499-WEIN. Uh, you could also um, visit RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And uh, his lectures, as I've been saying for years and years, will certainly enhance not only the nine days for you, but will enhance your entire year. Uh, by the way, Rabbi Wine has online uh, plenty of books, uh, movies available on DVD or download. Um, he's got the Divrei Torah that are released on a weekly basis. Uh, special deals with membership to his website. It's worthwhile going there and checking it out. Uh, it's RabbiWine, W-E-I-N dot com, and it's 1-800-499-W-E-I-N, 1-800-499-W-E-I-N. Wednesday morning on this 14th of July, day five in the month of Menachem Av. Thanks for joining us, everybody. The year 5781, the fifth day of our nine days that conclude on Sunday with Tisha B'Av. Then next week, please God, back to a regular programming uh, schedule, so to speak. Um, my name is Nahum Siegel. I'm in our New York City studios after our uh, wonderful time for a few days in Israel. Stacy and I were privileged, and I mean that seriously, to be able to go to Israel for a few days. Um, uh, essentially, if you have uh, direct family, siblings, children, parents in Israel, uh, there are ways to get in. It still is not easy, to say the least. Uh, but that's a starting point, and then you know a couple of miracles here and there after that, and you end up being able to be a couple of days in Israel. Um, so that's the story. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. A big thank you to our friends at A&H. I know it's the nine days, so very limited A&H product is being utilized this week, but guess what? Once Monday afternoon shows up, all of a sudden A&H products are going to be flying off the shelves again. Uh, check out their delicious hot dogs, all their uh, all their different items. Trader Joe's has their hot dogs nationwide, and of course, all the great kosher stores around the country have all the A and H products. A and H offers you a ten percent discount with promo code Radio at kosherdogs.net. As we always say, check out and try A and H today.
not literally today, if your uh, custom is not to eat meat during the nine days, but hopefully very, very soon. Um, JM and the AM, we we actually have a, a conversation coming up in a few minutes about a big NCSY event, which we'll get to. But let's start this series first on Jewish societies. Uh, this is Rabbi Wine's lecture on Jews in Victorian England at JM in the AM. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns uh, the reaction and the construction of Jewish society in Victorian England, 19th century. Uh, we are convinced now, I think, by uh, events that occurred uh, that the Lord uh, has his plans and that uh, strange things happen, especially to the Jewish people, unpredictable things. England will play an enormously important role in Jewish history over the past uh, century. And uh, we can say uh, uh, that if we're not for England, uh, there would be no state of Israel. That doesn't mean that they wanted to have a state of Israel, but they were the catalyst for it. And we are marking now uh, the uh, centennial of the Balfour Declaration. So uh, England has an important place in our story. And that's ironic because in the uh, 13th century, the Jews were expelled from England. And that from the 13th century till the 18th century, 500 years, uh, England was Unrhein. There were no Jews in the country. Shakespeare never saw a Jew. Beginning in the 18th century, it really began a little before the time of Oliver Cromwell, the rebellion against the king, the uh, upheavals in uh, England, the rule of parliament over the king, Jews began to trickle back to England. They were all illegal, but no one seemed to bother about it. And uh, in the middle of the 18th century, there already were synagogues in London, the famous Bevis Marks congregation, and most of the Jews who came were Sephardic. And they came from Amsterdam. And the Jews in Amsterdam were Sephardic, Spanish-Portuguese Jews who came to Holland after the expulsion from Spain. Now, England uh, is going to become a world power. And the advent of Jews in English society uh, is therefore important. I have uh, thought that, for instance, if Jews would have come to the United States at the time that they came to England, it would have had far less of an impact on the Jewish world and on Jewish events, because the United States had no impact on the world or on events until practically World War II. But Jews in England because England is going to become 
the major player in world society is going to be the British Empire. The presence of Jews there takes on an added importance. Uh, and that's all part of the uh, way God runs the world, where Jews find themselves. So uh, when uh, Queen Victoria in the early 1800s becomes the Queen of England, uh, officially Jews have no rights. Unofficially, the Jews have many rights, and some Jews are powerful. Now, there are different groups of Jews. The Sephardim came. The most famous Sephardic Jew is naturally the Israeli. And uh, the Sephardic Jews uh, were upper class. England was a class society. And uh, the Jews belonged to no class, and therefore they could pretend that they were upper class. So those were the Sephardic Jews. Then, in the middle of the 1800s, Ashkenazic Jews came, mainly from Germany. And then at the end of the 19th century, toward the end of the Victorian era, you had a mass emigration of Jews from Eastern Europe. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine is uh, speaking to us about Jewish societies in retrospect. This one is Victorian England, and we will continue the lecture uh, and no doubt start tomorrow morning uh, with this lecture uh, as well here at J.M. in the A.M. Wednesday morning on this 14th of July, 5th of Menachem Av. My name is Nahum Siegel. Good to be in our home base here in New York City. As much as we uh, love being in the Holy Land, no question about that. Someone asked about how recent the Rabbi Wine lectures are. I mean, there are lectures that we play, uh, in, especially the ones that we do um, when Tisha B'Av is on a weekday, uh, that were done many, many, many years ago. Uh, we try to play uh, um, uh, these few days the lectures that have been you know, done pretty recently. So not every reference is obvious when Rabbi Wine references a specific event or alludes to, I should say, uh, alludes to a specific event. Sometimes it might be hard to determine exactly which one he's talking about, but most of the lectures we are presenting this week are pretty recent um, over the last couple of years. And um, again, the more historical ones that we play are ones that he prepared many, many years ago to discuss the three weeks, the nine days, and Tisha B'Av. Wednesday morning, JM and the AM. Well, our friends at NCSY, who have had a very, very busy summer and a very, very busy year, uh, imagine the challenge that um, youth groups that are basically predicated on social programs, obviously plenty of learning programs, even the learning programs are based on, you know, getting together and having social activity. So imagine how it's been for NCSY over the last year. Uh, we have an opportunity to support NCSY and the incredible work that they're doing uh, with the Bike NCSY event. In fact, you can go to bike.ncsy.org, bike.ncsy.org to get information about all of this. Rabbi Yoshua Marchuk is with us live via telephone. He's director of NCSY alumni. He is the founder of Bike NCSY. And this year, it officially is happening on August the 8th of 2021. Rabbi Yoshua Marchuk, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. It's great to be back. I appreciate Thank you for that. Having me. 
I appreciate that. And I know that 2020 was a bit different when it came to this event, and we'll discuss that in a moment. But I also noticed on the website uh, that there are routes this year that could take people through and around Albany, New York, Bergen County, New Jersey, Boca Raton, the Catskills, Chicago, Kensington, Missouri, Kansas City, Long Island, L.A., Manhattan, right here in New York, Miami, Montauk, Portland, Philadelphia, and Seattle. Are those routes an outgrowth of the separation that many of us, uh, unfortunately, have suffered from since the beginning of COVID-19? Or was there always a vision to have bike NCSY in a variety of places around the United States? Great question, Malcolm. Great question. And uh, the, the, the reality is, is that, that when Bike NCSY began five years ago, we were, we were based up we based up in the Poughkeepsie area and beautiful, picturesque ride and the like, but it, it really kept it secluded from the vast majority of cyclists around the country. When I say cyclists, I mean everybody, not just the, uh, the guys you see in, in the funny shorts and such, but everyone that would want to ride, it kept it so far away from them. And then the outgrowth, exactly that point, the outgrowth of Bike NCSY came uh, last year, in the sense that we had to be separated and we had to go and, and keep our social distance. And, and even to this point, the, uh, the cycling industry has grown and the Jewish community has grown in their interest of getting on two wheels and getting out there and, and, to, and to cycle. So, yeah, we, we've always had a dream of, to spread it out and to, and to give everyone around the country the opportunity to be involved with Bike NCSY, to get involved with Bike NCSY. And, uh, and last year, that, uh, that quote-unquote pivot of the world that we were living in and, uh, and, and still just uh, moving out of it now uh, gave us this opportunity to give everyone in North America an opportunity to participate in Bike NCSY. I'd have to assume that biking is among the industries, and I think you basically just alluded to this, uh, biking is among the, among the uh, industries that really took off over the last year and a half, uh, up there with guitars and photography and other hobbies and activities uh, that we noticed uh, really took off over the last year and a half. Would you say that's a good assessment? Um, I would say 100%. And uh, I'll tell you that uh, you know a number of our corporate sponsors are in our cycling companies, Roy's and Specialized, Roy's and she said they, um, and they told me that they're, they're, the biggest issue is, is that they can't keep enough stock in you know, <laughs> over the last few years. People have, have really uh, attached themselves you know, to the saddle and really gone out there. It's ironic that you said guitaring also because uh, you know, in this family, I've, I'm a cyclist, and uh, my wife has also picked up you know, guitar over the <laughs> past year. But yes, 100% is, uh, there's been an outgrowth and, and a passion to getting out there on the pavement. Rabbi Yeshua Marchuk is with us, bike.ncsy.org. You know what we're going to recommend. We're going to recommend you choose a rider and sponsor immediately. It's bike.ncsy.org. The official ride is on the 8th of uh, August, and it supports the great work of NCSY, which Rabbi Marchuk will discuss with us in a moment. Uh, so it's funny. The 2021 Bike NCSY is going to look a lot more similar to the COVID 2021 than the 2019 one. Because now, uh, because you, I mean, obviously COVID encouraged people to do outdoor activities, and that whole transition was uh, uh, was undertaken last year. Uh, but now you're, as we said, you're incorporating all these different routes, not requiring people in any way to fly in or to or to bike in from anywhere to participate. 
And, um, you know, I, I guess, again, it, it, it just looks more and more uh, like you've taken the best of pre-COVID and the best of COVID and have gone ahead and formed Bike NCSY 2021. Is, is it, you know, it's one of, the, one of the things we always talk about when you're on for this event is that along the route, that, that the route's planned out really well. And there's first aid stations and there's people keeping an eye on X, Y, and Z. And you want to make sure the traffic is, you know, is dealt with in a proper manner. Is is it possible to do that for all the routes that you've listed on the website? So the, the, the reality is, is that there are, there are bigger sites and smaller, bigger routes and smaller routes, just depending on what's going on in the, uh, the registration. We have lots of, lots of routes to option from at this point. And uh, as the communities build, we offer more and more resources. What we do is check out every route that's posted on there. This way we know that it's been proven and that it's, it's safe and that it's viable. Um, the bigger the, uh, the population area, the more resources we can provide. But every route in itself is a safe and, and cleared route so we make sure that everyone is comfortable with. Um, and, we're, and we're proud to say that as, we, as we're growing as a, uh, as a program, um, we see that we have riders that are already registered from northern New Jersey, that's Passaic, Bergen County, Teaneck, the like. You know, West Hempstead has a strong contingency already, the five towns. We have a big team in Philadelphia, riders in Florida, Chicago, California, Calgary, Toronto, Seattle, you know, the Catskills. We're, we're, we're at this point three weeks away, and we, and we have riders all over the, all over the, uh, the country, basically, all over North America. So yeah, so when the the uh, the outgrowth, as you were just asking about and, and, and touching base on, of of what bike NCSY has become, we can also take as the best of what COVID had and what pre-COVID had, and in places like Philadelphia, in places like the Five Towns, in Northern Jersey, we're going to have finish festivals, which we couldn't do last year. Last year it was solely a ride that we were able to keep social distancing from. And it was, it, it was a way of getting out and doing something productive with your body and productive for Kaiserl. The monies that we raise there, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is going to support so many kids going to learn in Earth Stroll and Yeshiva and Seminary. Yeah. So people stepped up for, the, for, that, for that purpose alone. Yeah. But now we can start to go back in this reflection of, you know, what is it like to finish a ride and, and reconnect with people? So packs of people are starting to develop in different places. Friends are recruiting other friends. To go ahead and say, okay, let's go ahead and do this together. Let's go ahead and have a good time together. And let's go ahead and then gather together after the event to go ahead, after the ride, to go ahead and celebrate with friends and family. What, what route are you doing? Uh, I'm going to be doing the Five Towns route. Um, I have a desire to do, which is going to be along the Farakwe Boardwalk over in through, uh, through uh, Breezy Point uh, the, uh, and then back to, uh, you know, back to, you know, over the Parkway Bridge. We're going to get back to the Bell Parkway little strip. I think that uh, many people are aware of when you're riding uh, down the Bell Parkway. It's on the right-hand side going from Brooklyn towards Long Island. Um, so it's about 40 miles and such. Uh, what I want to do, if I wasn't running the event, is we also have a 110-mile route going wow. from the five towns out to Montauk, and we'll have a bus going there. What, what I'm really alluding to, um, Nachum, is, is that we have rides on all different levels. Right. We have a 10-mile ride in the Five Towns area. We have a 40-mile ride in the Five Towns area. We have a 35-mile ride in, New, in northern New Jersey. And we also have a 110-mile ride. The long- and the idea is the following is, is that you know, there are certain bike rides that are going on out there that are for the, 
you know, a, you know, serious men and serious women and, and going out there. And we're offering that as an option, a very strong option. And we had, you know, uh, we had nearly three dozen riders that, that did this ride last year. And we're looking to even grow that this year. By the but way, what, what, what yeah. I can see why is bringing that is so different is that we are really focused on the family ride. That's primarily where we're going for, where parents and children can go out and do this together. They can train together. They can go ahead and ride together. And they go ahead and it's, it's, it's not just going ahead and doing the exercise. It's not just going ahead and raising money for an important sucker, but it's going ahead and bringing the family unit together, which is what NCSY stands so strongly for. And when the fathers and the sons and the, and the mothers and the sons and the daughters all get together in whatever, in whatever combination and go out there and do this ride together, it's really, really, really beautiful, and there's a tremendous amount of of positivity that comes out for the family unit as well for Israel. Rabbi Yoshua Marchuk is with us. He directs uh, NCSY alumni. He's the founder of Bike NCSY. The event is August 8th. We encourage everybody and we'll continue to encourage everybody to register and or sponsor a rider. Go to bike.ncsy.org, bike.ncsy.org. You'll see how many routes, how many riders there are. There's plenty of opportunity get involved. Rabbi Marchuk, uh, anybody who's a parent in our community knows how expensive yeshiva and seminary in Israel is, how expensive it is to educate our children. Tell me about the role that NCSY has through this event to help alleviate some of that pressure. You know, NCSY is is about moving all teenage children from one level of Yiddishkeit to the next. We're a Kirov organization, and Kirov is needed through, throughout Klai Yisrael. We feel in our, it's our responsibility to partner together with yeshivas and seminaries to financially get our teens to learn in yeshiva and seminary. Yep. Everyone is well aware of the amazing work that David Cutler does with, with summer programs. Fantastic. And there are thousands of kids in Eric Searle, as we speak, having an amazing experience. But all of that is in preparation. All the NCSY program, program is in preparation for a life of Torah and, 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 and mitzvot. And yeshiva and seminary, for after high school graduation is such a critical part of that equation. What Bike NCSY does is it helps raise those funds to be able to help give scholarships to our teams to go ahead and go from high school graduation to go learn in Eric Strell. The calling, if not before, was amazing. was was, it was massive. Even more so now that we've gone through this COVID time and, and that and a lot of people have really been hit hard, there's even a stronger desire and calling to help for scholarship dollars. What Bike NCSY does is, is raise that money and move us forward. You know, what you were, you were just asking to, you know, and, and by the way, Malcolm, you know, not only am I going to do my annual pitch to find out which route you're taking this year to join with us, and we are dying for that opportunity to have you join us and ride, and we can talk about that offline if you like, even further. But, but, but you yourself this past week were standing in a, in a yeshiva that we, 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 we send students to every year. You were at Asha Torah. We were Gesh, the Gesher program at Asha Torah is a strong partner of ours. And what a good program it is. students to be there. Yeah, what an amazing program. In, the, in, in Eretz Yisrael. I'm yeah. sorry? Now, as I say, what an amazing program it is. It's an amazing program, and it's just one of a million examples that we can give of where young men and or young women are going to study in Israel and by NCSY, and the event makes it possible. There's so many different venues that NCSY raises money so that they can help fund the future of the Jewish people. And what you said is so right. All you're looking to do is help kids grow. All you're looking to do is help parents uh, do what they need to do in order to get their kids, to men or women, to the next level. And Israel is such an important component. You mentioned summer in Israel. 
We talk about the year in Israel, Rabbi Marchuk. <laughs> it is one of the, or both of those, I should say, are two of the most important components to making sure our children continue to grow educationally and religiously. Thank you, Nachum. I have to tell you, you know, we, we talk about Eric Stroll and, and summer programs. Just last week, yeah. I went to Baltimore to ah. go visit NCSY Camp Sports, nice, which is the oldest NCSY summer program right. that we have. It's run by Rabbi John Green. He's the greatest. Uh, close friend of mine, oh, yeah. as well as an amazing, amazing professional. And I went down there, and I went to their Mishmar, and I, I, was, I was there for a couple of days, and to hear the Kol Torah in the base measures, a public school boys and yeshiva day school boys yeah. learning in the near Yisrael base medrash. Yeah. That's where NCSY, some, in Camp NCSY, I'm sorry, Camp Sports, takes place in the near Yisrael base medrash. Right. And to see boys of all different shapes and sizes and colors going ahead and learning together, and the culture is absolutely beautiful. And Camp Sports, as an example, you, you were mentioning, if you're looking for someone to sponsor, Camp Sports has now fielded a team, which is on the on the team's page of our bikes.mcsy.org site, you know, they're raising money to send their own peers to learn in Yeshiva Seminary. So now, now what do I do? Concert, you can move it out now. now what do I do? Do I sponsor Marchuk or Green? Now what do I do? I'm in a terrible dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> and this then, should be the dilemma we should all have. <laughs> and, then, and then I saw one of the Pollock kids from West Hempstead is in this thing, and my daughters are going to insist I sponsor them. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> Uh, Rabbi Yeshua, Marchuk, and I encourage everybody to do the sponsoring. Do it. You can do what I, I'm, I'm going to end up doing, <laughs> sponsoring multiple people, or you could just go and find one rider uh, to sponsor the Bike NCSY event. And if you want to ride, there are a lot of great routes around the country. Check it all out. It's a beautiful website. has all the information, and it gives you a, a wonderful boost if you're thinking about participating in the event. It's August 8th, bike.ncsy.org bike.ncsy.org sponsor a rider uh we'll remind everybody over the next few weeks as we build up to the event that there are plenty of people there on the list uh to sponsor and if you want to register and be part of this biking event especially with your family as right marchuk pointed out which is so cool then it's bike.ncsy.org uh must feel great being the founder of this and watching it grow like this I'm really proud of this event. I'm really proud of what it does for the, the, the teams that receive the, the, the money, but I'm really proud of what yeah. it's done for the participants of, of Bike MCSY. They feel good physically. They feel good spiritually. And it just brings more and more families together yeah. and friends together as we, uh, as we go through life. No so thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it. Nothing. Oh, my pleasure. And continued success to you. And enjoy the event. August 8th, everybody. Bike.ncsy.org. Rabbi Yoshua Marchuk, the founder of the event, and my God, his heart is completely into this, and now so many people could say the same thing. There are a lot of people really dedicated to doing this ride, participating, and raising as much money as possible. Bike.ncsy.org. More coming up. It's JM in the AM. Oh, I uh, I noticed that listener Cena had snuck in a, uh, a little bit of an emergency announcement. She says, <laughs> hey, big happy birthday shout-out to Rasha Leah Gifter of Staten Island, celebrating birthday number 15 today, and... Mazal tov to her big sister, that's Hannah Miriam Gifter Rosen of Lakewood, who's celebrating a birthday tomorrow. I wish you both a great day, a wonderfully happy birthday, and a fabulous year ahead with much love from Bubby, Florida, who we know, of course, as listener Cena down in the Sunshine State. Rabbi Beryl Wine is with us. Jewish Societies in Retrospect, Victorian England at JM in the AM. Uh, is therefore important. I have uh, thought that, for instance, if 
Jews would have come to the United States at the time that they came to England would have had far less of an impact on the Jewish world and on Jewish events because the United States had no impact on the world or on events until practically World War II. But Jews in England, because England is going to become the major player in world society, it's going to be the British Empire, the presence of Jews there takes on an added importance. Uh, and that's all part of the uh, way God runs the world, where Jews find themselves. So uh, when uh, Queen Victoria in the early 1800s becomes the Queen of England, uh, officially Jews have no rights. Unofficially, the Jews have many rights, and some Jews are powerful. Now, there are different groups of Jews. The Sephardim came. The most famous Sephardic Jew is naturally the Israeli. And uh, the Sephardic Jews uh, were upper class. England was a class society. And uh, the Jews belonged to no class, and therefore they could pretend that they were upper class. So those were the Sephardic Jews. Then, in the middle of the 1800s, Ashkenazic Jews came, mainly from Germany. And then at the end of the 19th century, towards the end of the Victorian era, you had a mass emigration of Jews from Eastern Europe, Ashkenazic Jews, who came to uh, settle in England. And uh, these groups uh, functioned sometimes together, sometimes at odds with each other, to constitute Anglo Jewry. So let's begin the tour. In the early 1800s, England is occupied in the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon, France, attempts to dominate Europe. England, in an alliance with Prussia and other countries, eventually defeats Napoleon. When England defeats Napoleon, then England becomes not necessarily the dominant partner in Europe, but it becomes the checkmate against any other country in Europe. And that was British foreign policy, that no one country should be powerful enough to rule Europe. And England would always back the weaker to prevent the stronger from taking over. Now, Anshul Mayor Rothschild, in the late 1700s, establishes his bank in Frankfurt am Main. He has five sons. Each one of his sons opens up a branch of the bank. And because they trusted each other, uh, you have the concept of international banking across country lines. 
So in France, in Paris, there's James the Rothschild. And in Frankfurt, there's William. And in Vienna, there's Solomon. In England, there's a man, Nathan Meyer Rothschild. And he comes to England in the early 1800s. And he establishes a branch of the Rothschild Bank. It's called N.M. Rothschild and Company. Now, when he comes to England, uh, he faces great hostility. Uh, the remarkable accomplishments of the Rothschilds uh, are even more remarkable because of the hostility that they faced. And uh, there were other Jewish bankers as well. But the Rothschilds came to dominate the scene. Now, Nathan Rothschild was a traditional Jew. Uh, William was an observant Jew. James was not at all. In fact, the Rothschild house in England, the bank, was closed on Shabbat until the 1920s. And uh, Nathan didn't do business on Shabbat. The Rothschilds perfected the art of floating bonds to uh, finance countries. Uh, for instance, uh, we have that today. All the, uh, the United States owes, what, $19 trillion or something? So how do you pay that off? That means you're missing that money in the Treasury. So uh, what happened was that the financial markets of the world kicked the can down the road. And they said, uh, we will sell bonds backed by the British government, let's say, or the French government. And uh, the bonds pay a certain interest, but they're not due for another 15 years or 30 years, whatever. And uh, the Rothschilds facilitated investors to buy the bonds. And therefore, uh, they were a vital part of uh, the English society, and they were a vital part in helping build the British Empire because they financed the deficit. That was Nathan Meyer Rothschild. Now, he wasn't the only one, but they were the major players. They set the market, and uh, it became an enormously lucrative business because they got a commission. They got a commission from the buyer and a commission from the seller. And they had a spread on the interest rate. And uh, this system is in place today. It's a more, uh, it's more uh, refined. There's the International Monetary Fund. It crosses national lines. But for instance, China 
has financed the United States over the last 10, 12 years. Meaning that they bought the bonds. Whether that has implications other than financial is a matter of discussion. But uh, this is a vast oversimplification of, the, of what goes on, but uh, the Rothschilds played an enormous role in English society. So much so that they could not be ignored. And for the first time, therefore, you had Jews that were in the upper class, that owned the great estates, uh, that imitated the lifestyle of the uh, great and mighty in England. Now, Rothschild had a brother-in-law by the name of Moses Montefiore. Montefiore, as many wealthy men then and now, after a while got tired of making money and devoted his life to philanthropic and national causes. And Montefiore saw himself as the protector of the Jewish people. And because of their wealth and because of their influence, so he had entree to the queen, which was unheard of. So, for instance, in 1840, there was a blood libel in Damascus, in Syria. There was a French priest, uh, and there was a boy that disappeared, and the priest said that the Jews had kidnapped the boy in order to extract his blood, in order to make matzahs. It was 1840. Uh, because of that, the uh, leading Jews in Syria then were arrested. Under torture, they admitted to anything. And they were to be sentenced to death. Uh, Montefiore uh, obtained a letter from the Queen uh, to the Sultan of Turkey, because Syria was then under Turkish rule. And uh, he traveled, and he defended the Jews, and eventually the Turkish authorities came to the conclusion that the Jews were innocent, and that it was all a made-up story. And this made Montefiore a hero in the Jewish world. So much so that many Jewish organizations and schools were named after him. I remember in Chicago, there was a Jewish school, the Moshe Montefiore Talmud Torah. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Achenu Yisrael and Achim Achem, our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN app.
Wraps up a Wednesday here at JM in the AM. Tomorrow, plenty more. Make sure to be tuned in. And uh, we will feature more of Herbert Wine's lectures, please God, and plenty more. And I thank you for joining us. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.